You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Devings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello and welcome to episode number 246 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Sterrings and joining me, as always, in the festive PTUK studios is my co-host Matt Smith. Exactly how is this studio festive? I've got my Christmas jumper on. Oh, right. Oh, dear. Well, I'll have to go and get mine then, will I? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I managed to find it because I thought I'd lost it. I thought Gemma had burnt it or um, sold it on eBay. That but does no, sound like something she'd do. I yeah. found it I found it in the back of the wardrobe. I had to brush a bit of dust off. But it's <laughs> oh, here. right. Okay. But what do you think? It's, not, it's very festive, isn't it? I festive. mean, it, it looks like a cardigan. I'm not going to lie. It is a cardigan. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to lie, it's a cardigan. Absolutely. We do love a cardigan. Right. And uh, how are you, Matt? <laughs> Hysterical, it seems. You know, oh, good. Yeah. Good, good, yeah. good week. Uh, yeah, I think so. I survived. That's always a bonus. Yeah. Is he driving around the streets uh, yes, of, ra- ra- yes, mean streets of East Anglia? Yes, indeed. Yes, looking forward to a London very shortly. Oh, is that for the Christmas time thingies? Uh, no, no, no. They're going to some um, yeah school, going to some... Um, scary locations in London oh, okay. I've not heard of so okay. that, that's going to be fun you had a bit of an issue um, didn't you um, I think with a, with a certain coach of yours a bit of a breakdown a bit of water pipe explosion oh right well you know these things happen don't they but Matt he's such a legend he fixed it himself no I he's... did not <laughs> God no <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> tell you a driver and mechanic I don't know so joining us as well from his uh, stately manor over in Buckinghamshire in the NevTech studios it's Neville Bounds Yes, morning everybody. Hope you are all well and uh, hopefully a better picture this week as well. Mm. I've been mucky about with my camera and doing bits and pieces and adding bits and pieces to the studio. But uh, yes, it's been hard work configuring it all, but uh, I'm not going to do it every week because it's too much like hard work. Well, it's, I'm, I'm very disappointed, you know, Neville. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I, you know, I was hoping for, you know, you know, dedication every single It's like, because you know, I mean, you do practically nothing for the show, obviously. No, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a passenger. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, just looking at the chat room, by the way, Owen's in there, which is great, and he's surprised that we started on time, which was a, a bit cheeky. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Very cheeky. You've got to watch these Irish, though. They're nothing but trouble. <laughs> oh, excellent. And talking about the chat room, it's uh, nice to see so many of the usual family members in there again on this Sunday morning. It's 10 a.m., and uh, it is the 9th of December, so we're gradually getting towards Christmas. But welcome to everyone. Mariana, we've got uh, Auntie Liz in the chat room. Owen, as uh, Nev said, is in the chat room as well. Pilot Pips just popped in as well. He's uh, on his BA flight. Uh, he's now on his way home. I don't know I'm from where. Let him on. I know. He's obviously using the in-flight Wi-Fi. Oh, no. Do they have Wi-Fi on BA? I don't know. Anyway, uh, uh, Armando as well is in the chat room as well. So welcome to you. And Chris Griggs as well. Hello to you, Chris. And welcome to everyone who's joined us this morning uh, for the show. We've got an absolute... It, I mean, Nev. It's I packed. Mean, yeah. The, the folder is just bulging with stuff. We, we've probably, probably overdone it a bit, haven't we? But yes, uh, there's so much content to play out. We thought yes. we need to get ahead of the game slightly, and uh, that's and, what we're planning on doing. And some of it is a little uh, time sensitive, which is why we yes, just, yes, need to sort yes. of cram it in. So, yeah. so we've got loads and loads of stuff to get through on the show this week. We've got um, coming up later. We've got a really good interview that uh, Nev done with Matt and Andy from the A320 podcast. Uh, we've also got some uh, feedback as well, which has been sent in to us by uh, Matthew Buntingframe and Mike 
Fisher. They're talking about films. Uh, we've also got the second part of the Sir Richard Johns interview, uh, which uh, Nev and uh, Captain Nick done a few weeks ago, which is awesome. And I know everyone's waiting with for that uh, with bated breath. Bated breath. We've also got uh, a special festive video this week. Uh, promoing our Christmas competition and uh, as always this year uh, our good friend Owen has done us a little festive video to ask the questions that uh, we've posted for you guys and I'll just on that note I will say that uh, we've had uh, we've had some, we've had a lot of entries, entries I'm really pleased Yay. to say yeah, absolutely. we've had we've had a very strong uh, yeah a very strong sort of set of, and, and more importantly they're all getting the questions right I know which is it's amazing yeah. it's amazing what Google will do for you isn't yeah, it yeah right no 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 they, <laughs> They know it all off the top of their head, don't they, Nick? Absolutely. Of course they do. I'm glad to see that everyone got question one right. That, that was, yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, I'd be I, worried I, if not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, only the, it was only our biggest sort of, oh, no. well, at that point, it, it was, was our, our biggest, biggest show, show ever. But, of course, uh, uh, we have sort of uh, maybe dwarfed that slightly yes. in, in recent years. But I'll tell you what, actually, we've had an incredible year. We really, have. We, uh, we have, yeah. yeah. But that's all coming up later on in the show. But first, we are going to start the show then, as we do each week with a rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt. I am, yes. And if you're ready, Nev. Yeah. Let's go. So this week's first news story kicking off is on the thrilllist.com website. Great news if you are a family with young kids because this airline will fly kids to Europe for free for your family vacation. Say what now? Free. Free. <laughs> oh, wow. Scandinavia may not be at the top of your list for your next family vacation, but it should be. Not only are the Sweden, Norway, Denmark and Finland full of a once-in-a-lifetime European adventures for all to enjoy, but Scandinavian Airlines is offering to fly your kids there for free. That's right. Parents, prepare to win some serious cool points with your kids. The airline's Kids Fly Free promotion is back, meaning that free base airfares on round-trip flights for infants and children to any of the airline's destinations in Scandinavia and Finland with accompanying adults. Passengers will only be responsible for the cost of government taxes and carrier-imposed fees for booking their child's ticket, which shouldn't run to more than $60. Babies up to 23 months old and children ages 2 to, 12, uh, 2 to 11 qualify for this uh, deal. Kids 12 and over won't have access to free flights, but Scandinavian Airlines does offer discounted travel rates to passengers under the age of 26. Oh, that's me and you out there, Matt. The promotion <laughs> applies to all flights booked between January the 8th next year, uh, 2019, and April the 2nd, 2019. So the clock is ticking, so I'm taking advantage of the discount. Travellers in all seven of the Scandinavian Airlines United States markets, including Boston, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami, Newark, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., will be able to access this unique opportunity. That's like that free flight. I mean, I know you've got to pay your taxes, but like I said, it's only sixty dollars. What's that about fifty quidish? Uh, yeah, if you like. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think it might be that might be a good one to throw at Owen because he's quite good yeah, at working gonna, all yeah. that stuff out. I, th I think that's yeah. about what it works out to. But yeah. um, you know, because I think a lot of airlines charge the same price flat fee for a, um, mm. for a ticket for a you know a, a ten or eleven year old as opposed to an adult. So, I mean, well. what, what's the what's the the reason behind this? Do you think is it a way of trying to encourage people to take their families away with them because perhaps people aren't bothering because 
they're worried about. Um, I think it's a good way of getting people to go to these destinations for their holidays. Right. Because I, 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 I've always wanted to go to somewhere like Scandinavia or Finland or Denmark. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's you know, definitely the, on my bucket list. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I think if you've got young kids, you know, we all like to save a few pounds here and there. Oh, so yeah, it's definitely. a good idea to have this kind of promotion. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's running next year, beginning of next year. So uh, get on the mm. website, Scandinavian Airlines. So get on there and check those uh, deals out. Yeah. Okay. So next story, moving on, yeah. is uh, well, for you, Matt. Yes, indeed. And obviously story number two can be one story and one story alone. Uh, it's on the moneysavingexpert.com uh, website. Seriously, in the UK, actually, very much recommended if you're trying to sort of save Good a website, few pennies. Well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Martin Lewis is a bit of a, a legend, really, when it comes to stuff like that. But anyway, the headline is, Ride Air passengers complain of name change glitch which could cost them £115. Some Ryanair customers who have booked flights for groups have reported a bizarre problem which apparently results in the group's surnames being changed to be the same and those affected could face a £115 fee to correct the booking. MoneySavingExpert.com has seen multiple reports of this issue in the past week with Ryanair passengers travelling with partners or friends with different surnames claiming that their companion surname were automatically changed. Uh, passengers who book Ryanair flights with an incorrect name have 24 hours to correct it for free. But if they spot the problem later, the fee to change a name <laughs> is £115, which can be significantly more expensive than the original cost of a ticket. We first spoke. We first asked Ryanair about this issue on Monday and on Friday, after we had first published this story. It finally responded to say that it had been unable to replicate the problem. It insists there is no problem with its booking system and says that customers whose bookings are in the wrong name will have to change it within 24 hours or pay the full fee. So it then goes on to say, what is the issue? So we've seen eight complaints to Ryanair about this issue in the past week, and Money Savers have also emailed us about the same problem. The affected customers uh, we've spoken to say that they'd all booked flights for the same group of passengers with Ryanair before, meaning the passengers' details were saved to their Ryanair account. This meant that when they booked, uh, they were able to select passenger details from a drop-down list rather than having to fill them in manually. The passengers have spoken to claim... Sorry, the, the passengers we've spoken to claim the details appeared correctly at this stage, but after completing their booking, they found that other passengers' surnames were listed as being the same as the lead passenger, even though this was incorrect. Bookings made on both the website and the app have been affected. It doesn't seem to be a universal problem though when money saving expert tried to book a flight to replicate the issue all passengers names were recorded correctly Mike Peters, 58, from Guildford in Surrey, told Money Saving Expert he'd spotted the error on not one but two Ryanair bookings where he'd used the automatic drop-down and, strangely, only his female fellow passenger surnames were changed to Peters. While Mike managed to spot the errors within, 24 hour, within the 24-hour window for free name changes, others who didn't notice until later on now face a £115 charge to change each incorrect name. I won't go on to it but it then goes on about how um, you know some people have sort of missed out on the opportunity to go on anniversary things because they can't afford to do the changes and all that kind of thing so uh yeah i, I mean it, it i mean well it's not i think it's fair to say nev it's not uncommon for a, somebody to have a technical problem that then can't be replicated by the it department when they try to look into it is that is that a fair Most occasion yeah it works for us mate what's your problem well yes, yes absolutely right. yeah no, i mean this uh, happens quite so, a lot yeah. 
I know it does. And this is going to happen more and more, unfortunately, where, you know, there's been some misspellings here and there or what have you, or some back end IT stuff not working and, and the ball passenger has to uh, cough up. Yeah, um, indeed. A bit like that ideas, certain yeah. software glitch for a certain mobile phone company in the UK here. This oh, week. what you mean O2? Oh, yeah, O2. Yeah, you, can, you can name and shame mm. them. It's all right. <laughs> I, I think, I think there's a, it was enough of a problem not to, for it to be oh, kept dear. under the radar. Because the major issue here with, with, with that sort of glitch, of course, is because you don't realise how many people are, rely on mobile mm. data do you to actually get their information across i mean it, it knocked out most of the tfl bus network because they the buses have got o2 sim cards in as have the the matrix boards that tell you where where everybody's going to be so mm. they just couldn't get data anywhere i mean it's uh, anyway that's got nothing to do with this particular story but yes it's, it's all about uh, the software it's a, well yeah something like that yeah <laughs> absolutely so moving on uh, next do, do we know what oh. system they use just out of interest do you know that? what system ryanair uses as, as their back i don't end? know actually I, I was going to say whether nev um whether BA have a similar kind of thing with name changes is, or... Isn't it Windows 3.1? Uh, quite it's, possibly, yeah. yeah. It's highly <laughs> likely, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I wonder, wonder how, much, uh, how much it changes a lot across the board with all the airlines if you change, if you have to change or make a make-up or you muck up your uh, booking yeah. and have to change your name. Yeah, I don't what, know. If uh, what all the airlines it? charge. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, Nev, next story. Yes, rather disturbing story on theindependent.co.uk. Uh, it's a BA story, of course, and it says that a male passenger had to be restrained by a cabin crew on a British Airways flight after allegedly trying to punch fellow travellers. The unnamed, the unnamed man was filmed being held down by a crew and passengers whilst they used what appeared to be seatbelts to form a harness to keep him in place. Wow. The incident occurred on the 5th of December on a flight from London Heathrow to Singapore. He allegedly tried to punch fellow passengers after drinking a bottle of duty-free spirits, another traveller told The Sun online. It was about three hours after we took off. This passenger sitting in front of us was getting more and more agitated, she said, adding that he kept getting worse despite the cabin crew's attempts to calm him down. He was jumping up and trying to punch other passengers, and this really tough-looking bloke had to step in. Uh, she said that the other man pinned him down in an arm lock and held him there until the crew could strap him to a seat. Police met the flight at Singapore airport and escorted the passenger off the flight. BA spokesman told the independent the crew on board reassured customers, uh, moved nearby passengers to alternative seats and arranged for police to meet the aircraft. This sort of behaviour will not be tolerated and the appropriate action will always be taken. Our customers and crew should be able to enjoy their flights and not suffer any form of abuse. The incident comes after the government launched a call for evidence in November to determine whether airports should be subject to alcohol licensing laws. The review was in response to rising numbers of drunk and disorderly incidents on flights. A report by the Civil Aviation Authority found that there were 418 incidents of disruptive uh, behaviour by passengers on UK flights in 2016, more than double the previous year's total. Well, that's pretty worrying, isn't it? You know, you're on a 13-hour uh, flight and then three hours into it. Uh, this sort of kicks off. I mean, I was surprised actually by British Airways. I thought they might have said something like, oh, do stop it, old chap. You know, <laughs> take, take a seat. Be a, be a good fellow. Uh, but uh, obviously it was more serious than that. So, um, but uh, yeah. But you see, the thing is, it's not about being drunk here. It's uh, obviously he had the alcohol on the plane. So he wasn't drunk before he got on the right. plane. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah. so maybe cabin crew missed perhaps what sort of state he was uh, he was uh, essentially getting into um, mm. whilst he was in the air. 
Difficult though. Isn't it? Difficult. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it must be difficult because the trouble is, is it's like the minute you start denying people their the alcohol that they want, of course, the minute you start stepping into that, you know, it, mm. it's probably already too late, isn't it? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Because it's yeah. it, it's it, in the best in any situation, it's going to cause bad feeling or. Or what, I mean, it, I, I mean, I, again, I doth my cap to our various friends yes. who are all cabin crew. I, I just, I, it must be the most impossible job in in the world. I really must. Well, there is a, there was a story this week actually that, that uh, I haven't included, but it came out um, early this week, and that uh, Delta Airlines have um, oh, yes, I they've think put they yeah. bumped the price of their their alcohol alcoholic up, drinks yeah. up on uh, during yeah. the flight. So perhaps yeah. that's what they all need to do. I think twenty quid for a little mini bottle of whiskey will probably be a bit too. You know, right. put people off. I mean, you know, you're going to really need to. But then, I guess, see, I, I, maybe it's less of an issue uh, on on say what I call the the big legacy carriers. But I mean, things like um, say Ryanair and EasyJet and probably Jet Two to a degree. I mean, the, the, with respect, the cabin crew usually earn, I believe, sort of commission on those things, mm. and you know that is quite a large part of their their wages being worth having. Do you know what I mean? Because they're not perhaps as well paid as they should be. Um, so if if you're denying them that that revenue stream, I, I don't know. I, you know, maybe we just need to be better at um, not being muppets in the air when we're drunk. Mm. <laughs> stick to the lemonade. Yeah, stick to the lemonade. Yeah. So the next story is on the Chiron Chiron dot com website website we always go to for all our aviation greatness and uh, the headline is uh, good news actually for for those of you who live at uh, bush intercontinental airport this uh, one is cargo airline to make uh, the iah home base for massive antonov an124 jet mm-hmm. so a bizarre looking antonov and AN-124, uh, aircraft with 24 wheels and expertise in carrying oversized cargo, will now be based at Bush Intercontinental Airport. Russian company Volga Depnov Group will dedicate one of its 12 Antonov AN-124-100 aircraft to Houston as it opens an operations base at the airport. The AN-124 is the little brother of the Antonov AN-225, which we all know is the huge Myra, it's called. Uh, that one, uh, the world's largest, and the latter is a rare plane to glimpse, but it does occasionally call on Houston. In addition to the AM124, uh, the company will provide crews, technical support teams, and special loading equipment. Konstantin Verkshin, executive president of Charter Cargo Operations for Volga, said that uh, opening the base was a natural development in its relationship with the airport. The commitment brings us even closer to our customers geographically and enhances our ability to provide special out-of-the-box solutions which make our customers' lives easier, he said in a statement. We feel this will accomplish these goals and enable us to offer more economical and faster services managed by our team of local experts. Uh, its new base comes during a period of growth uh, in cargo at Bush Intercontinental, which is on pace to move a record 500,000 metric tons in 2018. The airport had moved 413,472 metric tons of cargo through October, up to 19% compared with the same month last year. Ian Wadsworth, Chief Commercial Officer for Houston Airport Systems, said the strengthened economic, uh, economy and improved energy sector have contributed to this cargo growth and uh, i haven't seen i've seen the 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 225 but i've not seen the 124 so i think they come occasionally come to standard i do believe in the uk here but um i mean i mean i know they're not the biggest but 
the uh, 124 is definitely a sizable aircraft to see mm. on the on the runway but uh, it's good news anyway if you're in the US you'll get uh, the chance to see this uh, at Houston so I suspect that the, the, the Americans are going to be less interested in anything that's come from Russia uh, at the moment <laughs> uh, I, I think to be fair it's, uh, <laughs> we're not thrilled about the idea let's be honest <laughs> no they're always coming coming at Sending their jets over here to um, yes, pester our well, uh, quick no, just, response you know, guys. Got to keep them busy, haven't you? Mm. You know, you can't have them all sitting sitting around, basically waiting, waiting for their tea and medals, can you? Oh. I mean, <laughs> so the next story, uh, Matt, is on Flight Global, and it's a um, mm. bit of a bit of a bang for Boeing here. Yeah, absolutely, and I think really, given recent stories, I'm mm. not at all surprised to be honest. So it's uh, Flight Global is the website, as Carlos says, and the headline is Lion Group founder threatens to cancel Max order. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me, Lion Air founder um, is it Rusty, Rus- Ru- Rusty Kirana? Yes, yeah, apologies that's if that's incorrect. Uh, un- unhappy with Boeing's response to the recent crash of flight. Uh, Juliet Tango 610 is reportedly looking to cancel the group's massive order for the 737 MAX. Uh, Bloomberg reports that uh, Kirana is preparing documents to propose cancellation after feeling betrayed by Boeing's response to a preliminary report on the 29th of October crash, which he felt gave a negative impression of the airline. Uh, Flight Fleet's analyzer shows that the Lion Group has 237 MAX aircraft on order, comprising of 187 MAX 8-9s and 50 MAX 10s. There will be financial penalties for cancellations, but Kirana has said that the airline will deal with the consequences later, whatever they are, Lion has been a long-time Boeing customer with its Malaysian unit uh, Malindo Malindo Air uh, being the launch customer for the MAX 8 while its Thai Lion affiliate was the first airline to receive the MAX 9. It was also designated as the potential MAX 10 launch customer at the Paris Air Show back in 2017. Uh, The loyal Boeing customer turned to Airbus with an order of four 234 A320 family aircraft in 2013 to help meet the group's ambitious growth plans. Fleet's analyzer shows that Lion is scheduled to take delivery of seven MAX aircraft in 2019, followed by 24 in 2020 and 35 in 2021. Deliveries are scheduled through to 2026. Boeing put out a detailed response to a preliminary report on the Lion crash uh, released by Indonesia's National Transportation Safety Committee last month. In it, it reiterated key points from the interim report, but also pointed out the lack of some of information, including reports to the installation and calibration of an angle of attack sensor that had been replaced. Yeah, I think Mm. it... um it could have been handled slightly different, I think, from Boeing's point of view when this initial incident happened. But I think the in, the investigation, I think, is still very much on you know, so is, underway. Is, is this the report where we basically found that key information hadn't been passed on to? There's, there's a lot of different um, things that are going, reports and stuff are going. Some are saying that uh, Boeing sort of withheld information on training yeah. as, in re- regards to flying the Max. And others are saying that you know this this uh, something that should have been pointed out and mm-hmm. put in on paper as such uh, um, before the aircraft was certified. But there's there's so many different stories and stuff. I tend to just go with whatever the Aviation Herald says. Oh, well, it yes. ten, tends yeah. to be uh, <laughs> correct on on there. What yeah. uh, the awesome site that Simon does. Yeah. What do you think, uh, Nev? It's a bit bit of a knock for Boeing if they lose this rather large order. yeah and of course the, you know, the final report's not out yet and there's, no. there's a lot of other details to, to think about so this is just an interim 
thing, isn't it? I guess. Um, so we'll have to see. But uh, yeah, it's it's these things when they do happen, they can have huge commercial effects upon uh, airlines and operators and engine manufacturers, all sorts of things. So people have got to be careful. Uh, but um, I think we really ought to wait to see what the the final report says before those guys start making big judgments on, yeah. on things. Yeah. Absolutely. Perhaps Boeing have jumped the gun a bit in regard mm. to uh, sort of passing comment, perhaps. So, Nev, the next story is a bit of a tech one for you. Yes. You know, we're talking about all those connectivity problems we've been having here in the UK with those yes. O2 fellows. Well, <laughs> yes. on uh, AIN Online, uh, we're talking about uh, onboard connectivity. And the onboard connectivity service uh, specialist, GoGo Business Aviation, is highlight highlighting at MEBAA. 2018. It's 2KU high-speed broadband services for VIP airliners introduced last year and it's forthcoming Iridium Certus L-band offering which will provide broadband services for smaller cabin aircraft. GoGo's 2KU connect, uh, connectivity production for head of state Airbus and Boeing Airlines uh, debuted in um, mid-2017 aboard an uh, ACJ319 operated by Germany's K5 Aviation with the installation performed by Fokker Services. Since then, half a dozen additional VIP aircraft have been outfitted and GoGo has a very exciting pipeline of potential high net worth individuals and head of state operators considering the product, said Dave Mellin, the company's director of public relations and communications. As a major base of VIP airliner ownership and operations, the Middle East is a prime market for the company's connectivity services. 2KU uses a proprietary dual antenna system that delivers high-speed broadband connectivity via Iridium's KU band network, which has more than 180 satellites, ensuring global coverage and system redundancy, according to GoGo. It supports live streaming of news, entertainment, video, and video conferencing. For operators comparing KU band and KU band solutions, a uh, major difference is that we leverage an open architecture, said Melin. As a result, if we need more capacity, we don't have to spend billions of dollars to build and launch a new satellite. We simply grow our existing agreements with our satellite providers. Already established in the commercial market, more than 172 KU systems are installed on aircraft operated by eight airlines, with current orders for more than 1,400 additional installations. That will include aircraft from half a dozen national carriers. At MEBAA, GoGo is also highlighting its worldwide roadmap for connectivity as KU becomes available for airframes provided by the likes of Bombardier, Dassault, uh, Embraer and Gulfstream, said Mellin providing a faster service at a lower than cost, uh, low, sorry, a lower cost than the competition. Well, it's uh, pretty important, isn't it, this um, up-in-the-air connectivity. We used to think of it as a bit, of a, you know, a bit of a bonus, something which would be nice to have. But if you're an executive flying in your executive jet, then you demand connectivity, I guess, don't you? Well, so you do, a, because I suppose... I mean, there's certainly business jets and things. I mean, they, they, you know, they're using the time that they're in, their air, in the air, essentially, to carry on working aren't they so i mean it's yeah. uh, especially if you're sat in business class or whatever even in your standard thing i mean you you're mm. literally <laughs> excuse me working and preparing for your uh, meeting as soon as you get on the ground i mean that is the idea of business isn't it and with the yes. with the sort of this uh, the whole wi-fi on board thing now it's starting to become incredibly mm. popular now and more and more airlines are starting to adopt even short haul um a lot of short haul fleets now are starting to have uh, 
the Wi-Fi connectivity on board their aircraft for a, for a flight of an hour long. You know, mm. people have got the chance to go online. Yeah. Quite why you want to do it on an hour long flight, I don't know. But <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. So the next story is on Flight Global, and uh, this one is uh, a bit of a, a bit of a worrying story for a Norwegian flight. This one was uh, departing Norwegian seven eight seven risked overrun after taxiing too far. So pilots of a Norwegian Boeing 787-9 departing London Gatwick inadvertently taxied over 400 metres beyond the beginning of the runway, shortening the takeoff distance and risking an overrun in the event of an engine failure. The aircraft bound for Buenos Aires had been given instructions to enter runway 26 right along taxiway Alpha November. This taxiway is unusual because it feeds into the runway in a straight line rather than a requiring a turn to line up with the runway heading. Runway 26 right also has a displaced threshold and in the dark the pilots taxi up to its threshold uh, some 417 metres past the beginning of the runway before commencing the takeoff run. This meant the aircraft had insufficient thrust to meet regulatory takeoff performance criteria for the runway length available. The 787 rotated about 600 metres from the end of the runway end. Uh, after departure, both pilots commented that there was not much runway remaining after liftoff, says the Air Accident Investigation Branch, or the AAIB. Uh, given the limiting length of the runway, the load had been reduced to allow takeoff, and therefore the crew were not surprised by the length of the runway used during takeoff run, and we were unaware of any problem, they said. But it had the aircraft suffered an engine failure at the critical V1 speed, an attempt to abort the takeoff could have resulted in an overrun, says the inquiry. Analysis by the carrier indicated that the aircraft was 12 tonnes too heavy for the available distance. Four other incidents uh, similar involving aircraft uh, not uh, starting their takeoff run at the beginning of 26 right were recorded in the period between September 2017 and the Norwegian event on the 28th of March this year. Neither pilot of the 787 uh, could recall seeing anything which indicated they were in the wrong place, although a takeoff distance sign illuminating at night is positioned to the left of the beginning of the runway. Runway 26 right is not the main runway at Gatwick, but the airport's operator has proposed bringing it into routine use for departures, at least for single aisle aircraft, as part of a strategy to increase capacity. In the aftermath of the Norwegian incident, a NOTAM amendment was issued describing the position from where takeoff runs should commence on 26 right, as well as safety notice which include a, photo a photograph showing visual references and the view from the taxiway. Uh, Gatwick's operator has agreed to examine other paint schemes as well, which might increase awareness at the beginning of the runway, especially at night, where it's uh, also prepared to look at whether a more conventional turn-up line junction could be introduced. The inquiry acknowledges that this would all present significant challenges for the airport in terms of taxiway lighting. So it's a case of uh, wrong turn there. Yeah, uh, indeed. <laughs> but uh, these, uh, I've seen the these um, these the, the iPads or the uh, kind of tablets they have on mm. the uh, flight decks and stuff, and you know some of these um, uh, airport uh, maps they have on there are really detailed, really yeah. quite detailed. And with the GPS units and stuff that the show run, they obviously have the position of the aircraft on the map, and they, the pilots can see exactly where they are on the, the on the you know the grand scheme of the airport. But obviously something went a bit awry here. I think. Yeah, indeed. So next up on uh, next one is for you, Matt, on yeah. Aerospace Testing International. 
Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I can't wait. Uh, so yeah, Aerospace Testing International is the website, and there. <coughs> excuse me. Sorry. You right there? Uh, yes. Sorry. I have got a bit of a cold. I'm, I'm doing my best. Uh, Boeing powers up the first triple seven X test aircraft, which is very exciting. Uh, Boeing has powered up its first triple seven X aircraft at its site in Everett, Washington. The switching on of power is one of the final parts of the aircraft production process and enables functional testing to be done before the first flight. The fuselage sections of the aircraft were joined together in late November. The company has two uh, uh, 777X test aircraft in development. The 777X's first flight is scheduled for 2019. Uh, The 777-9 is expected to enter service in 2020 with a smaller variant, the 777-8, following a few years later. Systems testing on the 777X started in June 2018 in a new 11,600-square-foot laboratory called Airplane Zero, built by Boeing Test and Evaluation. Uh, The laboratory consists of a functional 777X flight deck, monitoring stations and 777X power units to represent the full functionality of the aircraft, and enable engineers to perform many tests in advance of the powering up of the first test aircraft. Beginning testing on on time supports uh, our goals um, of delivering a service-ready aeroplane for the first flight, which will allow for an efficient flight test program and ultimately help us deliver on our commitments to our customers, says Chris, uh, who is the 777X Systems Test Manager for Boeing. So yeah, it sounds like they're very much. Actually, it's a great pic- picture of this. It's, uh, it's the thing. The thing is, is uh, I'm uh, sort of like was, I can't remember now. Was it last year or the year before where I went to Toulouse? Mm. Sort of all, all these days are sort of busy. All these years are sort of rapidly merging into one. I think it must be an age thing. I just but, love uh, the pre-painted or the pre-painted yeah. green color that they have in the fuselage. You see, I, I look at so apologies if you're listening on the YouTube uh, on the um, audio feed of this, but uh, yeah, have a look at this story in the show notes because as I say, you look at that aircraft. And as I say, I look at that and I just have flashbacks to to my trip yeah. to, to to Toulouse. It is a until you've actually stood there with a machine that is literally in bits being put together. It is a truly oh, I just love it. What, I, what I, do you think of these folding wing tips, Nev? They look very cool, don't they? I mean, yeah. as long as they they all work uh, as yeah. advertised, I'm sure there's <laughs> contingency for if they don't for some reason. But yeah, uh, yeah I, I think they look quite uh, quite cool actually. What what do we think? The, what what is the purpose of the folding wind tips? Is it just so it takes up a little less room? When they're yeah, trying on to... on the apron and stuff. When these aircraft are at various airports, right. you know, it just takes that kind of um, extra width away right. that these aircraft okay. have because they do have phenomenally long, uh, wide wings. Yeah, as a triple seven X. Yeah, but uh, be be great to see. This is another yet yeah, another aircraft that when these come online eventually that I want to you know would, would love to get. Uh, Get my hands on Get as such right. that and the A three fifty. You know, you all these first, all these aircraft are racking up. But I want to try and get on right, a flight okay. on. You're going to have to yeah. do a lot of flying very soon. I know. I know. Before before they do like they did with the A three eighty and you know start taking them out of service <laughs> yeah. already. You know, that's, uh, that's Gem, the Gemma's not listening, so I'll just say I'll raid the joint account. Yes. Okay, right. Yeah, that's anyway, a, that's a that's a brave. Where do you fa- where do you want to go, Nev? Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's think. Uh, oh, I'm sure we can find somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, anyway, moving on to uh, to the next story. And uh, yeah, this is on the uh, Fox35Orlando.com, and it's all about the phasing out of the MD80. Now we know somebody that flies uh, this type of aircraft, mm. and uh, 
uh, to, uh, on this occasion, it's uh, Allegiant Air has flown their last MD-80 flight at Sanford Orlando International Airport and uh, all of the airports, all of the airports that they serve. Uh, the discount airline completed a multi-year phase-out of the aging airplanes uh, with a final flight last week. Allegiant will uh, now operate an all-airbus fleet, according to the company, uh, the switch began in 2012. Uh, Embry-Riddle professor Lou Westbrooks said that the MD-80s are being widely phased out throughout the airline industry. First introduced in 1979, the planes have aged out of efficiency and, uh, he said, are often plagued by mechanical issues leading to flight delays. People make schedules based on us and it's incredibly important to our business model to make sure that we uh, we meet that schedule for everyone, said Westbrooks. Uh, he also said that the uh, Airbus also run more fuel efficiency, uh, fuel efficiently rather than the MD-80 and include a handful more seats, he hopes, uh, aiding uh, in keeping flight prices low for the carriers. Most major airlines have now phased out the MD-80 with reports of uh, American and Delta to do so as well. Well, I quite like the MD-80, I must say, and I flew them extensively uh, in the uh, late 90s with Scandinavian Airlines to and from Copenhagen and uh, from uh, Stockholm as well. And uh, really, really great aircraft, as long as you're somewhere near the front. If you're in the back, it's very noisy with those engines. But <laughs> oh, at, yeah. at the front, it's very uh, quiet, I've got to say. Yeah. Oh God! I remember my younger years on the DC nine, and or I remember how mm. noisy that was sitting in the back of one of those. Mm. But uh, no, they have, they have got the all Airbus fleet now. Allegiant, their three nineteen and the three twenty is uh, is what they're using now. But uh, now it's uh, safe to say I, I think these will probably be going to uh, one of those deserts. Nev, do you think in the uh, to uh, yeah, the Mojave Desert to live out there? Guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very likely. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. So the last story uh, is uh, on the ghpage.com website. And <laughs> Matt, I hope you can get this on the screen. This yeah. is crazy. <laughs> the uh, headline on here is Emirates Airlines introduce diamond-coated airplane. Hmm. Are we sure this is real? Dubai's <laughs> flagship airline Emirates has set heads rolling after the introduction of a new diamond-coated plane called the Emirates Bling 777. That can't be true. <laughs> the sparkly aircraft in the viral image was shown parked at the terminal of an airport along with luggage trucks. According to Kali Times, the image is said to be the artwork of Sarah Shaquille, formerly a dentist and now a crystal artist. Shaquille had posted the bedazzling creation on Tuesday and it turned out that Emirates liked the image so much that the airline asked for permission to repost it and upgrade her on her flight from Pakistan Aww, to Milan. That's nice. So Matt, you got the you got the picture on yeah, the yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So I don't think that this is an actual aircraft that's no, been no, covered no, no, in, no, in no, no. Uh, Although diamonds. I have to confess I made myself look very stupid this morning when I was chatting to someone where I did actually think it was real. But anyway, there we go. That's, that that, look, that's I mean, the joys of being very naive <laughs> about these things, isn't I it? I think if any airline was going was gonna to, to go to that level of bling... I mean, it probably would be Emirates. It would be, be Emirates, yeah, absolutely, I think, yeah, to be fair. A I mean, real picture. If yeah. that was a, a real aircraft, that would cause some... Some real. I mean, there'd be some lag issues and some weight <laughs> issues. Certainly, I think uh, there wouldn't be a, a, any room left for aeroplane, like for people and, and passengers. I know. Mind and, you, if it was, luggage. if it was covered in diamonds, at least it would cut through the air good. 
Are you sure about that? Uh, I see what see what you did there. See what I did yeah, there. Yeah, yeah like so that. sorry, everyone. Really what did, what do you think, Never? <laughs> what do you think, BA would uh, cover their triple uh, seven? Oh, it, it's far far too uh, blinged up for for BA. I'm afraid they're, they're, they're more moderate and, and subtle. Like You're right. <laughs> okay. I think BA would probably uh, adorn their triple sevens with a bow tie. Or a touch. That's right. Yeah. 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 I, do you know, I'd like to see them go back to the Landor livery. Oh, yes, I, I just definitely. Love that. Yeah. Love yeah. That. The nicest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> talk about being understated, but just very nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Indeed. excellent. Very, so that uh, that brings the commercial segment to a close this week, and uh, we're going to hand things over to uh, Mr. Bounds to introduce the next segment on the show. Yes, thanks, Carlos. Well, you know those fine chaps, the uh, AE320 podcast guys, Matt and Andy? Well, we had them on the show a while back, and we were talking to them about their podcast and, and what they were doing. Um, we've had another chat with them uh, very recently, just this last week or so, and it gave me an opportunity to ask them a lot more about what's been happening with their lives and what they're doing with the podcast. And it's actually a really interesting chat. So here we go. Well, here we are again, and uh, we have invited Matt and Andy from the A320 podcast back on the show. So, uh, hi, Matt. How's it going with you? Yeah, all good. Thanks very much. Yes. Brilliant. All and uh, nice to see you again, Andy. Hello. Nice to see you as well, Nev. Brilliant. So, a lot's happened since you were last on the show. Can you uh, sort of give us a quick run through of what you guys have been up to, uh, Matt, first of all, perhaps? Uh, yeah, so we've obviously carried on with our podcasts. We've reached a couple of milestones. We had our 200,000th download a couple of months ago. Wow. So we still keep growing strong, getting nearly 20,000 downloads a month, which we're pretty proud of. Uh, I think when we started, we said we'd be happy if we had 30 downloads a month. So we've certainly far exceeded our expectations on that one. Um, and... We have, as you know, Nev, launched the A320 Lounge, uh, which is our latest product. Yeah, now how's that going? Because obviously that's now online and, and all usable and everything. What's, uh, what's been the response to that? Yeah, once again, uh, our listeners have far exceeded our expectations. We did a pre-launch offer, um, which was you got a discount for a pre-launch for the first 100 people. Um, and we were sort of deciding what we'd do if that hadn't sold out after about three weeks um, and it sold out in 30 hours. So uh, it was wow. like, again, far exceeded our expectations, didn't it? Yeah, good. good. Yeah, we couldn't believe it, uh, how quickly the uh, pre-sale was taken up and then how quickly everybody was emailing us going, can we get on, can we get on and start doing the course? Yeah. And why do you think that is, Andy? Do you, do you think you've, you've hit a bit of a, a niche uh, market here where uh, all the information, well, some of the information's in the FCOM and all the rest of it, but actually it's the interpretation of it, which is more important, which is where you guys come in? Well, the lounge is us taking the podcast into a visual format. And historically in aviation training, videos have been well, die is the best way to put it. Mm. Like they've been filmed through a potato, bad angles or single shots. And with difficult procedures, people just still didn't get them. So we realized that we needed to improve the quality, improve the amount of shots. Um, a lot of these videos as well didn't have voiceover. So we've put our voice onto there as well, talking through the different procedures. And people seem to have really um, cottoned onto that and really liked that idea. 
strange, isn't it? Because obviously you're in a very much a safety critical environment. And I've seen a few of these uh, videos and other people have sent me examples of some that uh, from quite major airlines, actually. And they've, the quality of them has been pretty shocking, I have to say. And I, I just wonder why people haven't put more effort into it, really. Um, yeah, to be honest, no idea. Um, and we've seen a few other uh, companies producing videos online, but again, it's all still a lot of single shot, single position uh, camera work, and also not to the 4K quality that we've uh, put into this as well, where you can see every detail. So we're just hoping that our videos will continue to be uh, well received. And of course, as we'll probably talk about shortly, we're going to keep adding to the catalog. This first course that we've put out is just the start. Yeah, brilliant stuff. And is the response been from all over the UK and Europe and, and further afield than that as well? Uh, yeah, all over the world. We, brilliant. Of course, there's a, I think there's a we lot. had a sale today from Brazil, I think, didn't we, Andy? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Brazil. Fantastic stuff. Well, it's obviously a great uh, starting platform and clearly the, the format is appealing to people. And as you say, w with it being a very modular kind of uh, setup that you've got there, um, you know, it, it looks really good. And I, what I particularly liked is, is the online, uh, the, the, the app that you've got going for, for the training side of it. That's really clear, very easy to use, very lightweight app, I thought, and, as well. It didn't take up lots of memory on a, on a computer or a tablet or an iPhone or anything. So it was, uh, yeah, really good. Yeah, and we've made it nice and interactive. So you've got uh, progress tests and quizzes that can go through to test your knowledge, check how you've uh, picked up on the information. Um, and we, it's a mixture of videos and we've got presentations on there. So it's not just video. Um, and so we might pause the video and give some deeper explanation of that part of the procedure. Uh, and then at the end, we run through the whole thing undisturbed so that uh, you get an idea of what it's like in real time. Interesting. I know I've asked you this before, but do you think you'll ever get it to the point where um, the guys from Airbus put a call into you and say, actually, um, some of your stuff's really interesting. Can we have a chat to you about it? <laughs> it'd be nice wouldn't it Andy <laughs> it'd be great but I doubt that'll have ever happen to be honest a lot of these things same with the airlines they like to keep everything in-house so um, I think uh, they're quite happy with us coexisting but uh, whether they'd want us to infiltrate I doubt very much and I guess there's a lot of this you know computer-based training stuff going on now you know courses that are online obviously you've got to be in the sim obviously you've got to be doing line checks and, and that kind of stuff but I would imagine a lot of the stuff still is what used to be in the classroom but is now at home on a tablet somewhere yeah well there's quite a few uh, apps out there at the moment that cover um, different aircraft types and the sort of CBT train that's available but it's still all sort of animations and just chunks of the FCOM. We're, we're still planning as we go further on and produce more videos to make it on the same ilk that we've done now. So we show the procedures, then break it down with a few PowerPoints and as Matt said, pause the videos and talk over what exactly is happening and then have a full run through. Because there's lots of uh, different procedures that lots of people don't fully understand because you look in the FCOM or the uh, flight crew techniques manual as it's now called and it it gives detail but there's still a lot of stuff missing from it and that's where we can fill in the gaps with how to actually interpret it yeah that's one of the biggest problems with the Airbus manuals particularly is that 
they're written by French engineers, so they're not necessarily written in the same language as a pilot would write them. And then they're translated uh, from French engineer into English. So it can often be quite confusing. And some of it sounds like a solicitor's written it. And you have to read it about four times to even make sense of what they're trying to get at. And that's the nice thing about the modular nature of the whole thing is that you've got to sort of chunk it up into, into manageable pieces, I guess. That's right. Yeah. So you can, you know, go through and because it's modular, you can go through the whole thing uh, when you first do the course and then you go back. You might not want to see every module again. You might just want to do one particular part or you might just want to see the full run through in real time as a refresher. So by making it modular, it's easier to go back and dip in as you need to. And also, if you think about the training today compared to, I mean, perhaps not that long ago, really, you'd be sitting in a classroom, you know, listening to hours and hours of lectures, taking loads of notes and trying to revise all that stuff must be really difficult. Whereas in this sort of format, it's a lot easier to go back and review and, um, and replay things. Yeah, and the thing is, with this first course that we've launched, which is is your LPC, so that's your license proficiency check, when you actually go into the sim, you get one go. There's no practice beforehand. It's straight into that situation. You need to be able to do all these items and tick the box immediately. Because we do need to be able to handle an engine failure without a practice. And the great thing about the course is, as Matt said, it's modular, so you can just stop, you can go back, you can review it as many times as you want until it's set in your mind that you're happy with how to do it. Yeah, I understand that. And things like memory items, of course, which you obviously you have to know off by heart, um, you can pick that up and you, you can revise that through uh, your courses, I would imagine, as well. Yeah, I mean, like Andy alluded to earlier, we will be adding courses all the time so we've launched with this first course to give people an idea of what what we're going to be doing and the quality and we're going to just keep adding courses and of course memory items will definitely be in there because they're so important yeah brilliant now obviously you've been very busy doing some other stuff as well because uh, i had the great pleasure of listening to your last podcast uh, with a very special person that came on uh, to your show uh, for you to interview tell us a bit about that uh, yeah, well, just out of chance, I sent a message to uh, Richard DeCrepney, who you, I'm sure many of your listeners will know is the captain who was in charge of his Qantas A380 when it was climbing out of Singapore. Uh, the number two engine exploded um, and put over 50 holes in the wing and downgraded 21 of the 22 systems on board. Um, they had... I think it was 120 ECAMs, which is the electronic checklists that come up on the screen. Uh, and it took them uh, well over an hour to just get through those checklists before they were even ready to come and make an approach back. Um, so I sent him a message, told him about the podcast. And uh, yeah, he agreed to come on and uh, we did a podcast with him. We said, uh, we only expect to take up 15, 20 minutes of your time. And he was amazing. He chatted to us for about an hour and a half and we cut it down to about uh, an hour uh, on the podcast and it was a great success. And, uh, and then afterwards, um, he was on a, a flight into London. So he had a night stop in London. So myself and Andy had the pleasure of going and 
having lunch with him and his wife. So, which was great, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And uh, actually doing the interview was really interesting as well because we, we've covered a few um, human factors cases before, but we got properly into his second book, which is Fly, which is all about resilience. And um, just talking about the things that we do every day as pilots, which me and Matt take for granted, uh, it was really interesting, especially, uh, I mean, your listeners should go and listen to it. We talk about failing well, which is something that's um, not particularly discussed in uh, well, throughout life for all, really, people don't like to fail at all, but it's perfectly fine to fail well. And we had a really interesting chat about that. And it's really interesting, his um, new book. Some of the things that are in there really made me think about um, resilience in just everyday life as well. It, it was really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And neither of his books are aimed at pilots. So the first book is just the story of the actual incident. So if you're interested in, you know, flying and things like that that's great but his second book fly is actually probably more a business book that's for you know managers and leaders it's all about um how the rest of the world can learn from how the aviation industry is set up with just culture where you know you don't blame people you blame the system um, and things like that and it can be used in all walks of life so uh, we highly recommend that anyone uh, interested in that sort of thing reads the second book maybe i need to read it then because i blame people all the time where i work uh, so maybe <laughs> this, is, uh, this could be the way forward i'll tell you what i was interested in asking about particularly on qf32 now qf32 had a very experienced crew on board didn't they uh, in terms of the number of hours that all, all the crew had but it did sound to me from what he was saying that uh they were short of, you know, thinking headroom. Everybody got very maxed out very quickly. And I would imagine with those numbers of failures and those number of uh, ECAM notifications, that's quite easy to do, isn't it? Well, yeah, because uh, over 100 ECAMs is not something that you see every day. Plus, you've got to handle the fact that your engine number two has disintegrated. You've had a hole in the wing. The aircraft's not flying as designed to. Even though you had uh, Richard as the captain, first officer, a training captain being trained by another training captain as a checkout captain, it still maxed everybody out. And that's how complex a problem it can be when something goes so wrong that you weren't expecting. And you've just got to work your way through methodically and try and keep the human emotion under control. Fascinating to think about, really. Yeah, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, if it was just a two-crew operation, so maybe a, a short sector, perhaps they were just going from... I don't know, Singapore to Sydney, you know, sort of a seven-hour sector, which perhaps only required two crew, maybe. You know, how, how would those two guys have coped in that situation? I, I wouldn't, I don't know, you'd have to ask Richard. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe it was easier. I mean, one of the toughest things Richard probably had is that two of the crew, even though he was a captain, two of the crew in that flight deck were significantly more senior than him. And he was the one having to make the decisions and he says in his book, there's a couple of times where he had an opinion which they didn't agree with. And so it's a real conflict of hierarchy versus, you know, perceived hierarchy versus the actual hierarchy on the day. And, you know, it's, in some ways it was probably more stressful having uh, people that are technically above and below you in the hierarchy. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think that's, that's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because that's, you know, they're all there. And obviously the amount of experience they've got between them is massive, but actually you can have too much input possibly uh, in, the, in those situations, but you don't know how it's, it's going to be. It's a classic case of uh, too many chefs, isn't it? Yeah, very much you, so. you do feel that additional pressure when you've got, especially say you're in the simulator and you've got your instructor being checked by another instructor who's then being checked by the CAA. You feel the weight of it more on your shoulders when you've got those more senior guys behind you. Mm, yeah, I can imagine that. And just looking at uh, you know Richard's career and, and the stuff that he's written, especially in his second book, um, this is someone obviously that's had a lot of experience, uh, obviously line flying and all the rest of it, but he seems to be able to give a lot back to not just the airline industry, as you said, Matt, but uh, uh, you know life in general. And that's why it, it must make such a fascinating read, I'd imagine. Yeah, it really does. And it's, I mean, he talks about either, you know, he'll, he'll go off on a tangent and give an example. So he'll talk about how something is relevant to a procedure we do. Like Andy said, we just do it every day without giving it a second thought. And then he'll relate it to how that could be used in parenting or how it can be used in business as the job of a boss and things like that. So it's, it's really interesting. He traveled, basically he wrote the second book because he was going around the world talking about QF32 and he realized that he was actually giving people advice about how to run businesses and stuff. And there was such a market for people asking him to do talks about resilience that that's uh, what got him to do the second book. Uh, but so, yeah, you, you must have just been sitting there over lunch just uh, uh, thinking about that a lot and uh, probably thought about it a lot more after he'd gone as well, because he obviously leaves you with so much you know, more things, so many more things to think about. Yeah, I mean, the whole tube journey home, I don't know about you, Andy, the whole tube journey home, I was thinking, oh, I wish I could have asked him that. Oh, I wish I'd asked him that. There's just more and more questions uh, <laughs> yeah. on the way home. <laughs> yeah, brilliant stuff. Um, so he, uh, you've got uh, one or two books there, I understand, as well. Is, is that right? Yeah, so these are his actual books. So that's the first book that he wrote, which is QF32. So that's the one that he wrote about the event. Um, and then he's donated uh, to us two copies of his latest book. This is the one about resilience, which is Fly. And uh, they're signed, so he's, he's signed them personally. So it says congratulations for winning the podcast competition, oh, yeah. the A320 podcast. So it's completely personalized. Um, and uh, there's a competition to run that. So you just need to listen to the podcast episode. He leaves a question in there. Um, we'll stick the question up on the on all of our social media channels and even if you don't know about flying it's a 50 50 answer he asks a question does this happen or does this happen so you can even have a stab at it and have a guess it is um, a very got... it's a very technical question as well yeah <laughs> so if you don't know anything about flying then just go for a 50 50 um <laughs> yeah <laughs> you might find actually it's, it's such a technical question. Maybe even some pilots will just give it a 50-50 as well. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so yeah, so uh, that ends uh, in about 10 days' time. So if uh, your listeners head over to uh, all of our social media channels, uh, we've launched ourselves into the uh, millennial tech era and gone and so set ourselves up an Instagram account, which uh, I try and fumble on every uh, 
day or so. So we've got Instagram now. So there's Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook, and then you can uh, go on all of those and sign up. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. Now, last time I was over at your place, Matt, um, you were talking about uh, possibly uh, building your own studio there. Is that, uh, how's that project going at the moment? Yes, that's correct. Yes. So uh, the builders have been round and it's pretty much up. Uh, they've finished felting it. So it just needs painting and then fitting out inside. So then we'll have some proper recording uh, studio space. Um, and the plan is that we'll be able to do some video recording in there as well. So um, before we've just, with the first course, it was just a voiceover with um, a presentation playing, uh, but the plan is to make it more interactive so we can be on screen uh, with the presentation. So we can use green screen, a bit like they do when they're uh, presenting the weather. We can be standing in front of um, diagrams and presentations uh, to make it even more interactive. Yeah, that's fantastic. One thing I was going to ask you, actually, um, have you two guys ever actually flown together on on a real flight at all? Yes. Yes, we have. Uh, back when I was a first officer, me and Matt flew together quite a few times. Um, that's and how the podcast started, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. And then on our last flight together, before I went off for my command course, we actually got some uh, nice photos of us together, didn't we? We did, yeah. In fact, that was only about two days before you got promoted, wasn't it? It was like one of your last flights yeah. as a first officer, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> oh, brilliant. I'm trying to remember where it was now. It was somewhere far. Was it Larnaca or somewhere? Or no, Paphos, maybe? Some, something like that, yeah. Or Catania. Yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't yeah, a short Catania, day. That's right. Yeah. Catania, yeah. It was, a, it was a long flight, and I had to put up with him as my captain for the entire day. <laughs> but for the last time. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you both got on very well, and uh, you, you're very well suited to each other, if you don't mind me saying so as well. You've got great personalities, and uh, it, it comes over really well on the podcast, actually. I've got to say, I think you're both very natural at it, and that's why it's been so popular. I think that's why we've got so many downloads, because it's a very listenable uh, piece of work. Well, that's very kind of you to see, Nev. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. So how do people get in touch with you if they want to uh, find out more about your podcast and all the other stuff that you're doing? Um, they can find us on Twitter at uh, A320podcast. They can find us on Facebook and just search uh, the A320podcast. Uh, Instagram is, so that's for the A320 Lounge. That one's at A320 Lounge. Brilliant. And of course, uh, you can email us um, uh, info at A320podcast.com as well. You'll find all the podcasts on iTunes, um, Stitcher, Spotify, and you can find them on most of the uh, Android apps. Well, uh, can I just congratulate you from everybody at Plain Talking UK for doing such a great job of the A320 podcast and the A320 lounge and looking forward to seeing more content from you guys uh, very soon. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much. And likewise, uh, we love the uh, content that you guys give out as well. Um, looking forward to hearing all of the interview segments that you've done uh, starting last week with the Bolt of the Blue author. Yes, that was, uh, that's been very good, actually. And uh, Nick has, has done a superb job in interviewing uh, Sir Richard Johns for that. So, uh, yeah, we're very pleased with it. It was natural. It sounded like yeah. a, uh, a very professional uh, interview piece. So, yeah, well, that's very, very nice. Thank you very much indeed. That's, uh, yeah, PTUK is my car listen on the way to work. So. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Oh. 
<laughs> what a and of course, we haven't mentioned that the uh, the high quality of the A320 Lounge product is, of course, uh, thanks to the production team that we have as well, isn't it? Of course. Now. Oh well, that's that's very kind. Yes, that was um, that was a first f for me, and uh, yeah, there were some challenges uh, in in working in the simulator there, but uh, actually, we got some got some nice work done there and uh, yeah very pleased with how it came out so uh, thank you guys very much for helping us do that as well and of course the wonderful matt smith as well ah uh, yes exactly. yes yeah. we couldn't have done it without him but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah very, very good very good indeed so uh, yeah really enjoyed that so, uh, and of course if you're one interested in actually looking at the course or taking part in the course then that is the a320 lounge so that'd be a320lounge.com Okay, so that's the thing to look out for, guys. A320lounge.com. Well, that's absolutely fantastic, gents. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. And uh, as always, thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you. Cheers, Nev. Thank you very much. Cheers, Nev. Oh, look at you being all clever dude in the cloud. Awesome <laughs> couple of guys. Honestly, Matt and Andy, they are, they are legends, I tell you. Yeah. Really good. Oh, they are. And I'll have to say, I might reiterate as well again, that you know, I... I personally download the, the A320 podcast oh, yeah. myself and listen to uh, while I'm at work. And uh, it's, you know, I, I can't stress enough. It, I, it's a very, very technical, intense podcast that explains the inner workings yeah. of the A320. I, I mean, but I've, I've described it loads of times, literally, as it's, it's the Haynes manual yeah. of, of the A320, isn't it? I mean, it's for, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, for me, you know, I don't fly an A320, but I find, no. the, find the show incredibly interesting. And it's yeah. well worth a download if you don't already download or subscribe. Indeed, so, yeah. to do so. So well done, Nev. Thanks for that. That's great. And uh, the, the guys have been very generous with their time. And, of course, they're, they're getting noticed, you know. So they're doing yeah. these these interviews with well-known people. And there's some uh, some more coming up next year from them. Yeah, sure. hopefully. Yeah, looking forward to hearing all about that. Actually, we can't say anything at this stage, can we? But, uh, yeah, some, some exciting news uh, possibly in the pipeline for them. It's It's been really good fun. And I have to say, because uh, as as they alluded to, we've been sort of working with them closely on, on this on this A320 lounge project nev and it has it's been so much fun hasn't it yeah i really enjoyed it and uh, it gives me and that well and you obviously the opportunity to talk to the guys you know at, at length about things but also uh, to have a go in the a320 simulator where yeah. we shot some of the stuff so much fun. Uh, and all yeah, it was really good actually. So we've been some been some long days and nights, but uh, we've really enjoyed helping them with it, and uh, be doing some more with them uh, next year. Yeah, yeah, looking forward, looking forward to, to it. Yeah, we better move on. We're we're yeah, running out. So up we've next, got then, to cram in. Uh, up next, we've got uh, a special little piece of audio that's been sent in uh, by Matthew Buntingframe, and uh, in this segment, he talks to Micah all about uh, a, a certain kind of film. Micah. Hey, good day. Great, so great to see you and be able to talk with you. It's amazing. We're at op absolutely opposite ends of the world, but uh, it's great to be able to hang out with you, Matt. Mate, it's always a pleasure to hang out with you, and we're here for a reason, aren't we? Well, yes, we are, because uh, we both saw the film First Man, and um, after seeing it, I have to say that it was such a pleasure to be able to speak with you because you talked me down. <laughs> you got me back down into the earth because it was... Uh, not the best experience for me, from my perspective. <laughs> well, 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 being being a uh, an astronaut or someone who loves loves uh, NASA type of information uh, is is something that's quite special. You know, particularly you, know, you being an American and and for people who are av geeks, because it's a precursor to you know space is the uh, what happened as a consequence of of uh, of uh, the evolution of aviation. 
Very, very true. And I think, you know, before we, we're here to talk about First Man and kind of give it a review together. Yes. But before we do that, I think it's really important for uh, listeners to know where our perspective comes from, because we're both space junkies. We we're are. NASA fans. And, um, you know, you, you've studied the history of it and loved it all your life. And, and I kind of grew up with it. I, I remember where I was. I remember listening to the 1968 Apollo uh, 8 mission uh, going around Apollo 8? Apollo know, 8 went around the moon? Going around the moon. Day. I remember lying there in, a, in, a, in an army hammock uh, in, my, in my grandmother's house on Christmas Eve and listening to them reading from the Bible. And, uh, and I, I just remember that so distinctly and following that as a kid. Mm. And then we saw, I saw this film. So my reaction to it and our reaction to it, knowing the history, is a little different from what others might have been. So uh, I think Indeed. we need to maybe let others know a little bit about NASA history where the film starts, and how we feel about it. Exactly. So NASA was something that uh, came about out of a, a program called NACA, uh, which was, came around post-World War II, which was basically aeronautical development and evaluation. Um, and I believe it was uh, Eisenhower who, who signed on the dotted line to get NASA started. So a part of that, the background was they went to... Uh, to von Braun and said, "Well, how do how do we get going?" And there was a competition basically between uh, between the army and and NASA. And and in the end of the day, the army didn't do so well with their their missiles. And and uh, von Braun's experience ended up in the uh, in the Mercury missions. Very true. And NASA went through uh, pretty much three stages to get to the moon and um, Kennedy kind of, President John F. Kennedy challenged us to get to the moon with his uh, very, very important speech about choosing to go to the moon. Mm. And it was also a way to, uh, we were working not necessarily against, but uh, in a race with the uh, USSR, with the Russians over getting to the moon first. And it was sort of a cold war going on because many of these rockets at the time that were used uh, as manned rockets were actually missiles, and they were developed as missiles, and surface, uh, and uh, and 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 it was a way to develop a lot of that technology in, for civilian use. Well, absolutely, the Mercury rockets, the Redstone, and the Atlas were were actually inter intercontin intercontinental ballistic missiles. It was only the uh, the Apollo uh, rockets that were purpose built for for space travel. Right, because uh, Mercury, the Redstone was the first one that went suborbital. The Atlas was the first uh, was a rocket that went orbital. They were both ICBMs, and then Gemini, which was the next program after Mercury, used the Titan II, which was also an ICBM. Indeed. Uh, and then Apollo came around with the Saturn first, the uh, the one, the Saturn one B, and then the Saturn V that got us to the moon. Indeed, and they used to, they used a uh, a combination of those rockets to uh, to get to get the uh, space capsule and the, uh, the lunar lander to the moon. So in the different stages of uh, the Apollo 5 um, missile, uh, well, right. rocket. Uh, and they did some work with the Air Force before uh, Mercury started called the Man in Space Mission, MIS. And, uh, and that was uh, with some of the X-planes were working toward that. And the X-15 was the last one developed and that still flies. Yes. And they were working on the X-20, the dinosaur. Uh, dinosaur D Y N A S O A R, I believe, That's and uh, and that got cut uh, because they decided the Air Force was not going to bring us into space. Mm -hmm. The dinosaur was going to fly into space like the shuttle and then return it as a glider. Yep. Uh, that got cut, and we went into the Mercury program uh, with yeah. NASA. 
So and the Mercury. Go ahead. Go right ahead. ahead. Yeah. So the Mercury program basically was: Can we go into space? Can humans survive in space? You know, how does space affect the human body? Um, can we control something in space? And basically, that was all that it, that Mercury was about. Was okay. We've got someone up there. We can we can let him do a couple of orbits around the Earth and get him back to to Earth safely. There wasn't much control of of the uh, of the capsule at all. It was basically a person strapped into a basically a tin can and uh, and and thrown up into space. Right, and there were and it was uh, the Mercury capsules were a single occupant. Uh, it was uh, Mercury Seven, where the seven astronauts that were chosen for Mercury, only six of them flew. Yep. The last one to fly was uh, Gordon Cooper, I believe, and Gordon I believe Cooper. he did, yep. uh, twenty-three orbits uh, all- by himself. And is still the current world record for the longest period of time spent alone in space in a capsule. Right. After Mercury came Gemini, or Gemini, it was called both, um, and either one is correct, believe it or not, and that was to test the things we needed to do to get to the moon, because it was during the Mercury program that they determined that in order to get to the moon, they were going to do what was known as a lunar orbit rendezvous, meaning they were going to send a rocket into Earth orbit, it was going to depart Earth orbit and go to the moon, they would, a small capsule, the LEM, would uh, detach from uh, from the main rocket, land on the moon, come back, and then orbit in space. And they were going to do lunar orbit rendezvous in order to get men on the moon and back. And so in Gemini, they started testing all the things they needed to do for rendezvous and docking in space and long-term stays in space. And also walking in space. Exactly. So uh, Gemini, the reason why they call it Gemini was because Gemini being twins, it was uh, a two-seater. So that's why they called it Gemini. And it wasn't much bigger than the Mercury when you see those capsules, and I don't know if you've had an opportunity to see them, but uh, I've uh, was happy, lucky enough to see them at the Udrahazi Center, and uh, you see the one that uh, um, Jim Lovell and um, Frank Borman, Frank Borman sat in for two weeks, and yep. I can't imagine what it would be like being stuck in a can like that for so long. So going back to First Man, it's uh, and Neil Armstrong. The, this, you've got to understand a little bit about Neil Armstrong before we can talk about the movie because the movie picks it up at a particular point in time in his career. But, you know, Neil Armstrong's background extends, you know, well before that. You talk, you talk to about a guy who is very intelligent. He, as a kid uh, in Ohio, he had his own wind tunnel in his basement. He built a wind tunnel. Who does that? He was a brilliant man and a brilliant engineer and worked his way uh, from a small town in Ohio into, uh, I can't remember, was he Air Force or Navy, Matt? He was Navy. He flew, uh, I believe it was Panthers. uh, That's right. Off the Essex, I think it was the Essex. Yep, Yep, uh, in Korea. In Korea and flew about 76 missions. And I think one of the the points in his career over there was that uh, he hit an anti-aircraft cable and it took off a portion of his uh, vertical stabilizer and he managed to get the thing uh, back out to back out to sea close enough to be able to be picked up again. I mean, most people would have crashed it, but uh, you know, that was a, and he wasn't even 21 at the point in time. So for a kid that young to be able to think with such calmness under pressure certainly was a precursor and a predilection to to what was to come. Yeah, and he was an amazing pilot and became a very great engineer because uh, I believe he uh, he left the uh, the Navy and became a uh, test pilot at that time and yes. uh, 
and, and ended up out at, uh, at Edwards Air Force Base yep. and was flying the, uh, the X-planes, including the X-15. And, and that's where, the, that's where the, uh, the movie picks up. But just before you go there, um, he did graduate from Purdue University, and that's where he met his wife, Janet. And the reason why I, I come back to that is because his wife, Janet, plays a pivotal part in the movie as well. She's a, you know, basically, it's not a Bonnie and Clyde kind of situation in the movie, but it's, it's very much, you know, you, you look at the family side of things and you look at, at uh, Neil's career and how, his, his, uh, how he viewed his career and how he lived his life uh, based on on his personality with that so as you're talking about the x-plane so basically that's where where the movies picks up doesn't it yeah now bear in mind we're dealing with a former naval aviator a fighter pilot uh it, well, a fighter aviator for the u.s navy flying off of carriers a man who's got his master's degree at purdue university not an easy thing to do in engineering in a very tough field okay. and the movie starts <laughs> inside an X-15 hanging from a B-52 with everything very, very close up. And that's all you see and that's all you know. And mm. if you're not an aviation nut like we are mm. and you're just somebody going to the film, you might not have any idea what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. And the way they shoot it too, it, it, uh, it does show at that particular point Neil Armstrong's nerves about what he was about to do. It wasn't this calm, cool, collected kind of person. He, he did have... It, it showed the human side of him in that situation of him actually having to contain his emotions to be able to focus on the task at hand as a, as a test aviator and, and complete the mission. But what happened? Well, what really, this is what bothers me about the film, and that's what I'm, I'm going to start there in terms of the actual review. It starts in the middle of Neil Armstrong's career with all these close-ups, with a shaky camera under what I think is poor direction, without knowing what you're seeing, why you're seeing it, or what's going on with no history. And all of a sudden, you're, and I saw it in IMAX, which uh, was a little bit different, but uh, the close-ups are the same. It felt to me like I was viewing something through tissue paper tubes, mm. and, and, and it was so close and it was so shaky that you just didn't understand what was happening. Mm. And uh, and there was no story there, and it started there, and from then on, it only got worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it it's I don't think you know it, it, you definitely call it more of an art house kind of a movie than you would call it a a, a thriller like uh, Apollo thirteen, Micah. Yeah, there wasn't any history to it, and it concentrated on, and, and this isn't giving anything away because this is a biography, and so we're not going to be. This isn't going to be really any mood canceler, but uh, Neil Armstrong had three children with his wife, Janet. Uh, their first child, a girl, died of cancer at, uh, in a very horrible situation when she was, what was it, two years old? Two years old, Karen, yes. Yep. And, and it was a terrible scenario for, for a husband and wife, and it was very, very difficult. Mm. The whole film focused on that. And it didn't really show any other part of Neil Armstrong or who he was, who was known as a brilliant guy, as a jovial guy, mm. as a wonderful person to have around, mm. as an amazing pilot mm. who did some things, and they did show some parts of his piloting skills where if anybody else would have been there, they might not have come back and we might not have made it to the moon. Exactly. But they didn't show what a pilot he was and how he did that. Mm. You saw characters in the film, important characters that you didn't know you were seeing, people like Jim Lovell. Mm -hmm. 
very important astronaut that we know from Apollo 13. We did know who Buzz Aldrin was, yes. but there were so many other characters that just showed up out of the blue, important people in NASA that were hmm. good friends with, yes. uh, with, with Neil Armstrong that you didn't even know the names. You wouldn't have known if you didn't follow. Exactly. So, for example, you know, Ed White was played by a guy, guy called Jason Clark, and uh, you would probably know him from a few movies. Uh, and Deke Slayton was played by Kyle Chandler. Um, again, is it another person whom you wouldn't, you know, stereotypically place, or he doesn't even look like, you know, Deke Slayton. It, it's certainly not an, an an emphasis being placed on people whom looked like the actual people at all. It, the focus was definitely clearly on on Neil Armstrong. And one thing that struck me about, you know, initially with that with that whole mo with the movie is that it was the, the silence in the movie. It was. You know, we all know that Neil Armstrong was was more an introvert than a lot of people. Um, you know, he he always thought about what he was going to say before he opened his mouth. Um, you know, with, in relation to his daughter's death, Karen. You know, they they say it took took place after he actually bounced out of the Earth's atmosphere and, and fought his way back in in the X-15. But I think uh, from from memory that it actually occurred before. Um, so I think there was a bit of a, a, a mix-up in, in, in the timeline timeline there. Um, and, and you're right. You it, it, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you mentioned Kyle Chandler playing Deke Slayton, yep. who was a key person in the, in the program. And you and I know, and maybe our audience knows, that Deke Slayton was one of the original Mercury 7, but yes. was grounded. And yep. he was grounded because of a heart issue that eventually turned out didn't need to ground him, and he got to fly at some point. But... When he was grounded, they wanted to keep him in the astronaut corps. Mm. They wanted to keep him in NASA, so they made him the, uh, gave him the title of chief astronaut, and he chose the cruise. It was he a did. critical, critical position. But in the movie, which is something we needed to know who he was and why he was there, mm. if we didn't know that all of a sudden, if we didn't know that automatically, as Matt and I do, if mm. you just go generally as a viewer, you don't know who this Deke Slayton is and why he's so important. Indeed, absolutely. And the thing about... Uh, where we're at with with uh, Neil Armstrong, specifically with his kids, it it kind of shows that he, he distanced himself from his family a lot, um, and you know focused on his work. When when the the movie is basically stating that you know when things got hard at home, he focused on work. Um, it's I don't I, I don't know. Basically, it it de it takes away the the whole glitter or, and and how people perceive Neil Armstrong as being one of the iconic kind of figures of the 20th century being you know the first man to walk on the moon it, it, it makes him this movie definitely makes him more human than uh than a, a, a reverend uh person so it's you know if, if, if you're not prepared for that this is something this is a movie that could not have been made i think 20 years ago at all you know it's i don't think society no. was ready for it no it was uh it was more of an art house film than a biography and this is really what bothered me about it because mm. first man is a book that's a biography about neil armstrong yep. this was a biography that was focused on the death of his daughter yes. and how it affected him and that's all it told and yep. i felt like i didn't get to know neil armstrong i didn't get to understand who he was and what the biography was and how important he was to the program and what he did and mm. I thought it was poor storytelling. I thought it was poor direction. I thought it was poor filmography. And uh, I honestly 
can't think of anything about it that I liked other than that the credits, I got to see uh, Airplane Geek's good friend and chief NASA historian Bill Barry's name at the end. Historically, it was accurate. They didn't make any mistakes other than maybe a few minor timeline things, mm. but they didn't show why those historical details were important or what was going on. They focused on this artsy, artsy film aspect of it. The, the elements, the historical elements in terms of you know, uh, elements in the film, uh, for example, the the Gemini Eight capsule. You know, they they showed the surfaces being worn. You know, I'm pretty sure that uh, you know they didn't. It hadn't been flown by anyone before, so I don't understand why the surfaces would have looked worn at all. And and the same with with the uh, with the Apollo Eleven uh, lunar lander. You know, they, they, it doesn't look pristine and clean. It it looks you know, worn, it, and I don't think, yeah. you know, all the different engineers and people behind the scenes would have allowed a spacecraft in the 1960s, which was, you know, the epitome of, of US uh, technology to be going into space looking like a, a second-hand used car. Exactly, exactly. And, and the other part of it that bothered me is uh, just before the ending, the last scene on the moon, they show something that takes place, and I don't want to say what that is, mm. But that were, we know did not take place. <laughs> they they made that up, yeah. and uh, it was it was very disheartening because that would not have happened uh, because uh, Neil Armstrong would have followed whatever orders he was given and and would have and if that would have happened, NASA would have known about it ahead of time. Indeed, indeed, it's it's an interesting perspective. I mean, you know, for for us, you and I, you know, we probably watched pretty much every single documentary that there has been made about you know NASA and. Yeah, this is a for someone for people who the lay person who doesn't know much about about NASA. The feeling I got from the movie was that you know the spacecraft were very cold, metallic, you know uh, objects. They didn't have the personality. You know, they, you know, we we look at it, Apollo Eleven, we go, oh, that was Apollo Eleven. You know, the eagle. It's special. You know, you you, you go up and you, you touch. You know the the uh, what, what's remaining of the rocket, and you go, wow, this is Apollo. Yeah, you can't give it an identity. The you know the way it was portrayed in the movie as as a cold, vibrating, violent kind of uh, uh, object. You know, with the sounds of creaking metal and 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 the silence. You know, and what happened with Apollo Eight? Um, people who don't understand what happened with Apollo Eight, you go, well, it was it was actually Neil Armstrong's first mission into space. And as you alluded to before, Micah, if it was, if he hadn't been there, that capsule would not have returned to Earth, and and there's a possibility that the program may not have continued. Ge Gemini Eight. You, Gemini you said 8, yep. Apollo. Just Sorry, just to Apollo. be able to clear yep. that up. Gemini Eight, and he was flying with Dave Scott, and yep. there was a horrible situation that was not particularly portrayed well and it was also again shown from such close up that trying to show what somebody's feeling but that's not how even the people in the capsule would have experienced it because not everything is close up exactly um and, and the other part too was a lot of that was silent there wasn't a lot of communication going on in the capsule for the public to be able to to understand what was going on uh we all we everyone understands that these guys practiced you know, thousands of times, you know, every single minute of every mission was accounted for in preparation threefold, if not fivefold, before they went up. And, and so that could, that could be a reason why they, they weren't communicating. But, you know, for the level of communication going on in that capsule, they, I suspect there might have been more. And I think, you know, they, they, took, they took 
their their right to be able to just go well it's it dead quiet we're trying to just build on on the on the predilection that that neil armstrong you know internalized things and and he did things very quietly and and did them well but, but i don't believe I that's how it would have been Nate, based on crew resource management because exactly. nasa was using that before the airlines were yeah yeah so I, I definitely think they could have done a better job you know they, they basically said that dave scott you know passed out in the capsule <laughs> but never has that ever been discussed uh, and I don't know if it is true or not, but I certainly, you know, wouldn't be thinking that would be a nice way to try and remember someone who, who went on to become, you know, the commander of Apollo 15. And I wish that we could ask Dave Scott what happened there. And Dave's one of the few NASA astronauts left, you know, the moonwalking astronauts left is still alive. And yeah. I'd love to know what he thought of that scene. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to say this, I suppose. If you do, or if you're interested in biographies and history of NASA and wanting to learn more about the astronauts. There are three films that I would recommend that really, or two films in a series I'd recommend that the people get to get to know that. One is obviously The Right Stuff, yes. which film was great. The book was even better. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's Apollo 13 that we all know and love. The film was really well, well done. Ron Howard loves uh, space and made sure that he filmed that as accurately as possible. And Tom Hanks insisted that it happened that way as well. Very, very well done. And then speaking of Tom Hanks, the one that is probably the least known and the hardest to find that you and I have seen is Tom Hanks' HBO series called From Earth yeah, to the Moon, which really details what happened in the astronauts' lives, details individual astronauts, details their wives, details what happens in NASA. Yep. It was perhaps the most fabulous series in history of NASA on, that is for, for video use that I have ever seen. Yeah, I would uh, recommend In the Shadow of the Moon, which mm -hmm. I, thought, I thought was a very good documentary series, uh, which you know, it, it uh, interviewed the remaining astronauts in later years and their reflections upon what actually happened uh well there was another one called uh what was it called i can't quite remember it at the moment um, what was the gene cernan film was that last man on yeah the last man the on la the moon? last man yeah last man on the moon that that's a netflix on netflix i think from memory yeah so yeah so so to come back to to first man it's uh how, what would you give it out of 10 I think what uh, I said when we spoke about it before is that if you're home some night and if you don't have anything to do and have the opportunity to turn it on when it comes on TV or on Netflix or on Prime and you have the time to spend to concentrate mm. on it and watch it fully, at that point what I would do is definitely skip it. <laughs> I wouldn't see it under any circumstances. I'm sorry I went, and I wouldn't recommend it for anyone because it doesn't tell you anything. The only reason to go is to see how bad it is. So on a 1 to 10 scale, I would give it a less than a 10, less than a 1. Uh, if for someone who, myself, someone who's got a little bit of knowledge about NASA, I came out of that movie feeling really upset, and I, I, I just felt absolutely gutted. Uh, upon reflection, I would probably give it maybe a 7 out of 10. Um, just for the fact that it touches on something that hasn't really been touched on before, and that is delving into the mind of, of someone um, and focusing on that in an art house way. It hasn't really been done before, so I give it a seven. But if you've got small kids, I certainly think that the elements involved in this movie are not for them. I think they're too complex. Um, I think it's definitely a movie to be viewed by a more mature audience, and then uh, I would take a little bit with a grain of salt. 
And the, the thing that I really don't like about it, and I think the thing that, in fact, I, I like about it least is the fact that people learn history now more from films and from television than in any other way. Mm-hmm. And this does not cite the history. And people are going to remember Neil Armstrong for this one minor event in his life and based on this film, which is not who Neil Armstrong was. And that's why one of the major reasons why I don't recommend it. Indeed. Well, that's pretty much our review of, of First Man. It's, uh, it's taken us a while to get here, but we, we got here. <laughs> as That was being yes, used we... as a, a line in a, in a NASA movie. But um, thank you, And Mike. i gotta thank it, got to thank you, Matt, and i got to thank everybody for listening because, again, you've all been able to help me talk myself down off the ledge. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, it's any time. I'm always here for you, brother. It's all good. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Thank you. Well, I tell you what, they should have their own podcast. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Huh? Oh, Barry, Norman, eat your heart. Out. Yeah, exactly. film, film reviews. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, perhaps perhaps they should uh, do a spin-off show, you know, the, the uh, kind of a, a PTUK film review podcast. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Hosted by MBF and what, Micah. What was nice, actually, is, is from my point of view, again, it, it, interesting for, for me, because, you know, I'm the first to admit that I'm a little bit behind on these aviation films, blah, 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 blah. Uh, despite being a massive film buff who literally goes every weekend to go and watch a film, uh, and because they, they, they discuss several of the other films and, and stuff that, that, that have been out, so that, that worked quite well for me, but to know, seriously, guys, thank you very very much for uh, for uh, <laughs> I like that Auntie Liz. What are you like? Honestly, <laughs> Micah the movie curmudgeon. There we are, and I am delighted that that Matt managed to ch- chat him off the ledge. Uh, that, that was a yeah. phrase that was slightly frightening. But uh, <laughs> is it? Was it? Uh, uh, have you guys seen this film yet? I haven't. No, I haven't. No, no. No. Okay, it's all right. I mean, certainly based on on that review, shocking I'm not as it sure seems, I, I'm not sure that I want to go and see it now because they they didn't seem to have particularly enjoyed it. For uh, some for someone who hadn't <laughs> seen Top Gun until we poked it at oh, you. All right, there's no need to go away. Oh, move no. on. Anyway. Okay, so moving swiftly on then, Indeed. and uh, we have got a awesome segment coming up now. You all know what it is, and we are going to hand it over to. Uh, the awesome Mr. Neville Bounds to introduce. So take it away, Nev. Oh, great. Yes, I, I look forward to these every week. And of course, I've seen them and edited them and shot them and what have you. But uh, every time I play a part out, I, I've learned more information about it. So next up, it's time for part two of the excellent interview that Captain Nick did with Sir Richard Johns. If you were listening at the end of part one, you'll remember that Sir Richard discussed the uh, flying training scenarios that he carried out with Prince Charles. Well, we join this part of the interview with a little more detail about how Sir Richard managed that very important position that he held when he was with the Prince of Wales flight instructor. I I understand the um, maintenance requirements for Prince of Wales aircraft were immensely high. Well, they were Queen's flight standard. Mm. But, but compared with the average student, did you f- yeah. find that, that gold a little? Uh, that, um, you know, there was one chap here was being taught to fly in an aircraft, whereas the average student wouldn't have anywhere near that level of uh, maintenance done to no, his machine? No, not really. I mean, I, I think, uh, remember, this is quite a long time ago and attitudes were very different. And, uh, you know, the fact was that he was going to fly in these aeroplanes and, you know, the, and they had to be engineered to Queen's flight standards. And uh, I, I think I set it out in the book what that meant. But I mean, for example, all major components like hydraulic pumps, generators, things like that had to be half-lifed. 
um, and uh, you know, routine servicing um, had to be done on a more frequent basis, things like that. And I think everyone just, and those aeroplanes were also guarded 24 hours a day. Um, and I think everyone just accepted, you know, that uh, you know, he was the heir to the throne and appropriate measures had to be taken. Absolutely. Yeah, I understand that. But entirely. on the other hand, he did the flying course. Mm. Now, uh, so he was, there was no free passes. He, he earned oh, no. his wings very much uh, as any other student would have done. He did all the tests, you know, to get his instrument rating, his, uh, I forget, his middle uh, navigation test. Um, and then, of course, he was assessed in formation flying, all the other bits and pieces. And, of course, finally, the final handling test. Uh, which you know, said, okay, you're good enough to get your wings. That's brilliant. And he would have been good enough to move on eventually to a squadron had he been allowed to? Yes. We, 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 he, he didn't know it at the time, but uh, we, we did a posting board on the whole of uh, one graduate entry. And if he had stayed in the Air Force and subject to satisfactory completion of advanced flying training, uh, he, he was airmarked for Phantoms for... F1, you were the, the, the air defence uh, phantom, yeah, yeah. Oh, that would have been great. He might have been one of my squadron chums. Could well have been, <laughs> but I mean, just uh, just to round this off, I mean, we, we, we talked about it. Uh, well, I say we talked about it. He talked to me about it because he actually was, you know, he, he, he wanted to explore the possibilities of staying in the Royal Air Force because he enjoyed his flying so much. Mm. I had to say to him, I said, it, you know, it's a practical impossibility. He said, why? And I said, well, you know, if, if you go to a phantom, if you were to go, for example, to a phantom squadron, I didn't tell him that, no, this is what you know, he'd been airmarked for. I mean, basically the squadron would be grounded because to meet the conditions that are placed on the, the engineering of your aeroplanes on a phantom squadron, which is you know, many, many times more complicated, obviously, than a Jet Provost Mark V, uh, you would have, you know, the whole squadron would have been grounded. I mean, putting aside the risk element of it, and then I said, yeah, the other thing, of course, is that you are, you know, you're going to go to Dartmouth in September to join the Royal Navy. Yes. And I don't see anyone sort of going to uh, upset that arrangement. So we, I can remember talking, we talked about it nearly for a whole morning. Um, but then, of course, he got his flying uh, in the Royal Navy uh, with the, on helicopters mm -hmm. uh, with, with the fleet arm. He, it sounds like you got on with him very well. In fact, he was—he uh, played that practical joke on you when you pitched up at uh, Lucas, I believe. It wasn't a practical joke. It was just right <laughs> off the cough. <laughs> yeah, it left me here, gone. Well, uh, you, uh, you must tell the story, please, because it's, it's very funny. Well, well but basically, what, he, we, we flew up to Lucas uh, to visit 43 Squadron. The object being, by then he had finished all his training and we knew, he knew he was going to get his wings and therefore said, right, before you leave the Royal Air Force, we'd like you to fly in some of our frontline aeroplanes. And so he was going to fly in a Phantom. And so one afternoon in July, we, we flew up to Lucas. My ground crew, the only people allowed to touch these aeroplanes, had repositioned up there. We arrived and he was met by the station commander. We had this, we'd, by then we had sort of, had this little system of getting out of an aeroplane if he was going somewhere in the jet provost that you know, I would taxi it in and uh, you know, he, he would uh, have his pin into his seat and so on and ready to get straight out, leap out and so on, leaving me to do the shutdown checks and all the other bits and pieces. So the station commander met him and they were saluting and off they all went up to 43 squadrons crew room. And I was left there on my own. Uh, I had a chat with my ground crew and then I sort of ambled across to the squadron, went up into the crew room 
and there he was. He was he was sitting down there at a round table, surrounded by the station commander, the boss Hank Martin, who I remember, uh, QYs, QFIs, all waving their hands around all over the place. Uh, I sort of snuck past unnoticed, and I went up to the coffee bar because there was, a, there was an old mate of mine from Valley Days there called Jerry Shipley. And uh, Jerry said, have a cup of coffee. And I said, thanks very much. So I was minding my own business when there was a door beside the um, coffee bar that went into the hangar. And suddenly this opened up. In came the squadron warrant officer, red-faced. And he said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm having a cup of coffee. And he said, can't you see who's sitting over there? And I said, yeah, of course I can. And he, he really was almost apoplectic with rage. <laughs> and by now, his voice went up. One. This attracted the attention of the, the group standing sitting all around the table. And the station commander turned around, very rudely, said, who the hell are you? And I said, oh, sir, I simply, I'm Squadron Leader Johns, and I've just flown in with the Prince of Wales, and up piped Prince Charles. And he said, oh, no, he didn't. I've never seen him before in my life. <laughs> An absolute pandemonium. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, a great story. I love it. Um, we're going to leap uh, forward a little bit. Um, now, you got a lot of time on the Harrier in your time in the service. Uh, one thing that surprised me when you mentioned it in the book was that the Harrier was brought into service without a radio altimeter. Yeah. Now, what on earth was the rationale behind that? Haven't got a clue. I don't know at all. Um, I flew the, the GR1, uh, was a very, very basic Harrier. Uh, the GR3, ob obviously, we're now sort of getting more like it, um, and various bits were added onto the GR3, like an RWR, um, uh, radar warning receiver and so on, you know, during my time on the GR3. But uh, certainly in the early GR3s, we didn't have a rad out. And I can't remember whether one was fitted uh, later on. I mean, when I went back to the Harrier Force uh, as Force Commander, uh, I can't remember, to be honest, if we had a rad out in the aeroplane then. Perhaps we could explain to the listeners uh, the importance of uh, the, the radio altimeter in low flying. Yeah, I mean, nearly all our flying in the Harrier was at low level, um, at, at, at specifically out in Germany. Um, and the rad out obviously gives you a very accurate, you know, very precise readout um, of your height above the ground, uh, and of course it's not pressure dependent, um, yeah, and so on. Um, so it was very important. It was particularly important, of course, when you were night flying, uh, and so on. Um, we didn't have a rad out, and also a rad out. I mean, some of the weapons deliveries that we did, for example, lay down bombing. Um, it was your, your height over the target. Uh, you, know, ha you know, had to be at a precise height. It was calculated. The, the, the bomb release um, technology was actually arranged. As you can tell, I wasn't a QI. Um, qualified weapons. <laughs> That's right, sir. I was. <laughs> yeah, was arranged at your pass distance over the height, uh, over the thing. This is pre-Falcons. It changed after that. Uh, was a certain height. And of course, a rad out would have been very useful in mm. judging that height, whereas basically you, you had to use a seaman's eye. Or if you had a very accurate pressure readout, well, perhaps you could read the altimeter then. But of course, you then had to allow, of course, for the, the height of the ground above sea level, etc., etc. Mm. So it's very much seaman's eye. 
uh, unless you had an accurate uh, readout uh, from an yeah. altimeter. I, I but why they didn't put one in the first place, I don't no, know. But there were no, it, it always confused me. I remember that appalling accident of a Harrier pilot over Norway, deceived by his actual height when he flew over a plantation of tiny fir trees in the yes. snow. Yes. And he had believed them, of course, to be big fir trees, normal-sized fir trees, and got yeah. himself so close to the ground when he, when he banked the aircraft, he hit the, hit the deck. So very sad. Yes, I didn't know about that. Mm. That would have been a one-squadron aeroplane, probably. Mm. Um, moving on to the, uh, the Falklands War a little bit, and perhaps our opinion of the Harrier. You, you became the Harrier Force Commander, so you knew a great deal about the aircraft. The Falklands War may have coloured our opinion of the Harrier a little bit, but looking back on it as an aircraft that has now completed its service, um, did it live up to its potential in actual operations? And, and in particular, I noted that in America, uh, Congress have been quite scathing about uh, the United States Harriers, the AV-8B, particularly its loss rates when compared with the F-18, which was also yeah. carrier-borne, and the F-16, which was another single-engine aircraft. The loss rates in actual combat, as far as the Americans were concerned, were unacceptably high. And in the RAF, they were even worse. So, uh, is, is there a defense for that? Well, I mean, I think you have to draw a, a, a very clear line between uh, the early days on the Harrier and its operational application um, in, in, in the Falklands War. Um, when I went to the OCU uh, at Wittering, I always remember that the chap in charge of B Squadron, uh, when he gave us his welcome talk before we started doing all the ground school and so on and so forth, he said, right, the Harrier, easy to fly, easy to crash. <laughs> and those were his opening words. And what right. he meant was absolutely true. Mm. If you stayed within, the, and we're talking purely about uh, VSTOL here. I mean, once you were you know, outside you know, 100 knots, it was like any other, it was like flying a hunter. It wasn't nearly as good as a hunter to fly, mm. but you know, it just flew conventionally. But you had this speed band between 100 knots going down to, thir to about 30 knots, where if the aeroplane were pointed out of the uh, relative airflow, um, and you uh, induce yaw, uh, you had to make sure that you corrected that very, very quickly because if the yawing moment you know, came strong, what's the secondary effect of yaw? It's roll. And the aeroplane started rolling. You then suddenly ended up in a situation where the, the puffer ducks and your aileron control was insufficient. And so the aeroplane kept rolling, down it went, crash, bang. Wow. Um, so if you stayed within the limits, you were fine. The trouble was, where well, I say the trouble was, the challenge was that the limits were pretty narrow. And of course, when, when you were coming down or when you were in this transitional stage of flight, you weren't only keeping the, the aeroplane obviously into the road of airflow. And of course, you had this lovely little vein uh, on the nose, apart from the head up display to help you and rudder shakers as well. Although, if I remember, they didn't, they didn't, that didn't work them at the OCU or whatever. For, well, I think for good reason. Anyway, by the way, um, you were also monitoring angle of attack. Uh, you were monitoring engine temperature uh, and so on. And of course then, particularly when you're coming into land, you're also doing your vital actions. So there was a, there, there was a lot in the early days when you were converting on the aeroplane to think about. I mean, let alone eventually uh, sort of landing on a bit of metal, 70 foot by 70 foot. 
let alone try to find it uh, when you're out on field operations, when you've done everything in your, in your powers to make it very difficult to find, yes. uh, and so on. So in the early days, the accident rate in the Harrier, accident rate through mishandling of the aeroplane, and indeed through um, poor instrumentation uh, in the aeroplane was high. Um, and there's no getting away from that. I think, I, I can't remember the exact, but I think it was 19, 19 Harriers were lost between about 69 and 74, uh, most of which were due to uh, handling errors uh, of one sort or the other. The U.S. Marine Corps, who of course started converting, the U.S. Marine Corps, not Navy, remember that this is Marine Corps, they started converting onto the Harrier um, about almost the same time as we did because they were very keen on getting the aeroplane. But they were sending people across to fly the Harrier who were ex-chopper pilots. Um, you know, and so not surprisingly, their accident rate, I don't know what it was, I can't quote you figures, probably was, it was equally as high as ours, if not probably higher, before they actually started to get the message that you, know, you had to have some pretty basic handling skills to cope with this very powerful aeroplane. You know, people forget quite how powerful it was in terms of engine power. So you know, eventually, um, you know, it settled down. I mean, people didn't, the hierarchy in the Air Force didn't really understand the, the Harrier at the time. And the man who, who, in my view, had the greatest credit or deserves the greatest credit for really sort of getting the Harrier Force, particularly in Germany, uh, properly sorted out, not just in terms of what they were doing and the development of the field concept of operations, but in terms of logistics support and so on, was one group captain, George Black, and it was George Black who took a very serious grip on the Harrier Force uh, just before I arrived, and then followed up by Paddy Hine, um, who was the b boss when I, when I took over three squadron. And then the accident rate did that. It went way down. I mean, as I say, on my own tour on three squadron, nearly three years, we only lost one aeroplane, and that was a straightforward engine uh, malfunction. Um, you know, so things got remarkably better. Mm. If you then sort of uh, fast forward to the, uh, the Falklands War, of course, uh, one squadron uh, was sent south under my great old friend, sadly now dead, Peter Squire, who had been one of my flight commanders, you know, on three. And I think what we were always, you know, we just wondered, you know, the, 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 not so much the survivability, how much damage the aeroplane could take uh, in a real shooting war. Well, down in the Falklands, yeah, we lost, uh, I think, four of the original six aeroplanes. But um, other airplanes were coming back, you know, with, with a lot of holes in them. And the engineers were patching these up like, you know, as quick as anything, and they were keeping the aeroplanes flying. And so we, you know, we, we discovered in the Falklands War that the aeroplane could fight a real, you know, <clears throat> tough war and survive. And the four we lost, I mean, two of them I can remember, were certainly re-attacks. Uh, and you talked to Bob Iverson about it. Yeah. Uh, old child. I mean, yeah. You never re-attack. <laughs> well, Bob did. And I think, yeah. I think Jerry Pook did as well. But I, I, I'm sorry, Jerry, if I've got that wrong. Might have been someone else. But I certainly, I think, two were lost through, through, through re-attacks. And Bob Iverson, who was on three with me, and being his pupil at, or a student at Valley when I was instructing there, remains as dare very good friend. He makes no bones about it. On the other hand, what he did uh, at Goose Green might well have won the battle for the Paris. Mm. I mean, who knows uh, yeah. uh, about that? 
So we, we got a, a great deal more confidence in the survivability of the aeroplane in a real, real shooting war. Wow. Oh, roll, roll on uh, part three. I can't wait. This is, <laughs> oh, this is just so cool, Mev. Uh, just loving it. Absolutely loving it. Yeah, glad you like it. And uh, every time I, I listen to it, I, I learn a little bit more. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there, there's plenty more to come uh, yeah. from Sir Richard and uh, from Nick as well. I've already listened to the next two. Ha! Oh. Yes, well, that's one of the <laughs> that's one of the rare advantages uh, you have over over being. Uh, yeah, I'm going to start denying you access to. The I know it's, it's it is so. honestly, guys. Yeah. There are some absolute gems coming up soon. Absolutely, um, and we should so just say, is it Grub, Grub Street Publishers? Is it that is, correct? Yeah, um, yeah no. Grub Street uh, Books uh, Publishing books. Company. Yep, yeah. and uh, they've been very very helpful. You can uh, order the book online. Yep. Uh, as well, and I thoroughly recommend it. And of course, we do have a signed copy to give we away do. as part of our. We do indeed. And on the subject of the Christmas competition. Yes, it's Christmas competition time. So we have obviously got our competition running at the moment. The questions are on our Facebook page. If they are pinned to the top of our Facebook page, so if you're listening to the audio uh, version of the podcast, if you take yourselves over to our Plain Talking UK podcast page, the questions are on there. Yeah. Um, the prizes, as we said before, we have got, uh, Nev's got in his office there, a signed copy of Bolch from the Blue. I don't know if Nev's got, got it to hand there to uh, for no, those of you watching. No, I can not get it to hand. But he, ne next time. For next time. <laughs> but we have uh, we've got a, a signed copy uh, by Sir Richard Johns of Bolts from the Blue uh, as our star prize. We've also yeah. got uh, this Avro Lancaster Mark III bomber here, uh, which uh, took part oh, in on. various there raids. There's the, there book. There there the book. There's the book. So that's our star prize. Yeah, absolutely. Star prize. Yeah. And like I said, this Mark III Lancaster bomber, which uh, was it's quite a detailed model, this one is. This went to France for various missions during the yeah. war. We've also got uh, a good book here to go along with that as well. There's another prize, a Dan Buster's book there, The Life and of Guy Gibson, yep. uh, one there. And for those of you who love your viewing DVDs, we've got uh, War in the Air, six-disc collection of uh, from the BBC. There's a, there's a thin War combination I'd never thought I'd see. The, the BBC in association with the Daily Mail. Oh, that's <laughs> <good>. <laughs> there's, there's a thought. So all those great prizes up yeah. for grabs with the competition. So get your answers in via email, podcast yeah. at plaintalkinguk.com. And also we've got a special additional prize now, which we're adding to the, the uh, selection. Yeah. For those of you who are loving your air crash investigation type stuff, yep. we've got a six DVD box set here from the Discovery Channel of air crash mm. disasters. Loads of stuff there. <laughs> Although I should say, actually, ironically, I was actually watching, I think it was the Discovery Channel that I was watching this, and they had, uh, they had uh, uh, during an Emirates advert, they had an advert running at the bottom over this Emirates advert, a little stinger about air crash. I mean, let's, let's <laughs> remember, you're not, you're not going to see these <laughs> Which, on... I, I don't think the PR department at uh, Emirates are going to thank them for that, but anyway... But they, you're not, yeah. you know, you're not going to see these on your in-flight menu. No, I, your, I, uh, I think flight, that's highly so, unlikely. Yeah, yeah. that's a... <laughs> Another awesome prize. We've got, we've got so many prizes this Unreal. Have, it's yeah. brilliant. But we have got a special piece of VT to run, yep. uh, which has been done for us by the awesome Owen. So yep. if you're ready, Matt. Yes, so it is time to announce the Christmas order. Remind you of what the Christmas questions are. Ladies and gentlemen, for your chance to win some fantastic prizes in this year's PTUK Christmas competition, all you have to do is answer the following questions. What PTUK episode featured aircraft X-ray Mike 612? What is the ICAO code for the airfield Carlos learned to fly at? 
apart from the Rolls-Royce RB211? What other engine has powered the Boeing 757? From these two aircraft, which has the longest fuselage? Is it A, the Airbus A340-600, or is it B, the Boeing 747-8? We all know Nev loves BA, but what year did British Airways form the budget airline GO, and what year did GO merge into EasyJet? What did the Wright brothers do before inventing an aircraft? What year was the film Airplane released? What airfield is the Queen's flight based at in the UK? The Concorde is well known for her droop nose and it was used on takeoff and landing so the pilots had an unobstructed view of the runway. On final approach, what angle was this nose selected to? Where is RAF Akratori situated and what is its ICAO code? What year was the airline Virgin Atlantic formed? NASA operate a Boeing 747SP, registration November 747 November Alpha, which is a 41-year-old airframe. But who is the first owner of this iconic airframe? So for your chance to win these amazing prizes, send your answers in to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Best of luck. As one of the funniest things I think I've seen in the chat room here, and I, I don't think I'll get into trouble for this. He was saying, Tony S says, you could tell her he was an expert scratch card seller, can't you? He was, yes. <laughs> and it's very nice to hear Owen's voice it on the is, show, yes. as we, always. We Great have setup. missed you, mate. We really yeah. have. You, you, you know, it's, uh, Thanks it's, for that. It's not been a... Yes, you have been very much missed. Anyway, so that those are the questions. Uh, please, uh, despite uh, Matt Bunting Frame's best efforts, please don't send them in via the chat room. Could you please no. send them in by email? As Owen said, it's podcast. So for those of you in the chat room, you're all now banned from entering the quiz. (laughs) No, 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 they're not. That's fine. Play nice. Come on. Right. Okay. Oh, dear. So, uh, yeah, don't forget, like I said, the Christmas competition, it's all running. So get your entries in. We have had a few in this week as well uh, from various listeners in via email. So get your answers in. And we will draw them, as we said, on our first live show back in the new year. Uh, so, uh, well, we're going to start to wind things up for the show, but uh, before we uh, start to wrap up, uh, don't forget, if you want to send us in, because uh, we are going to have one more last live show next yep. Friday, yes, that's which right. will be our last live show before the Christmas break. So yep. if you uh, want to send us in an audio message uh, to play out on next week's show, yep. uh, please send us in your audio files, MP3s, yep. MP20s, uh, yeah, whatever, MP90s, whatever format. Whatever yeah, format. Matt yeah. can poke them and prod yeah. them and, and if them I can't play. do it then I know a man uh, who's based in the Buckinghamshire region who will no doubt to be able to so there we are it's all part of the so fun. send in yeah. your uh, pieces audio pieces if you want to send us in a Christmas message yeah. to podcast audio or video whatever yeah. at plaintalkinguk.com and uh, we'll uh, play them out on next Friday's show yeah Indeed. So that is where we're going to start to wrap up episode 246 of the show. A massive thanks to everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room this morning. It's been great to see you all in there, and some of you have got up especially yeah, early nice. uh, to uh, to join us. So thanks again for that. It's uh, it's been a yeah. it's been oh, a hectic uh, show. Good news, Nev. Uh, uh, Tony's going to send us one on audio cassette. We're looking forward to that. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah I'll get my uh, my denon out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> C60, a C90. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's definitely, yeah. yeah. Nice. Auntie Liz is going to send one on 8-track. I hope you have the facilities for that, Nev. <laughs> Not anymore, no. Oh. I, I did own an 8-track yeah. once. But, uh, yeah. 
And oh, uh, Baldrick is sending one via Pigeon. Is he good? Excellent. Okay. Well, that one will be easy to deal with. Uh, yes, uh, that, yes. Uh, it is. Uh, next week's show is uh, the recording. I should say uh, is live next Friday, Friday. seven p.m. Back to normal. Uh, Back and to it's, uh, we've got to keep it tight because Nev has somewhere else to go afterwards. So uh, it, indeed, we, we've got a, another uh, one of his meetings with the uh, big wigs. I expect. Oh no, no, mm. not quite. Well, no, no. I've just, it's uh, Mrs. Nev's uh, Christmas party, so I've got Ooh. to uh, take her and bring her home. So, quite right. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah so, no, it will be good. Uh, so looking forward seeing everybody uh, next Friday yeah that's it yeah, so uh, thank you very much to everyone for joining us yeah uh, is... you'll find us on oh, uh, yeah. facebook.com forward slash uh, plain talking UK Instagram it's plain talking UK Twitter our handle is at plain talking UK and in case you'd uh, missed it it's www.plaintalkinguk.com and the email address is podcast at plain talking UK.com that's where you send in your Christmas questions yes. please Mr. Matthew Bunting frame <laughs> <laughs> or you or you shall meet the blue spanner of death Oh, no, he won't be there. not for doing stuff like that. Ooh, honestly, I don't know what's the matter with him today. Are you hungry? Is that why uh, you're being so well, grumpy? The, 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 <laughs> for those of you watching the live show, will not appreciate the fact that just to my right here, there's a door that leads out to the uh, upstairs here. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. the smells of cooking meat and roast dinners Ooh, are yes. wafting up yeah. the stairs. M- mother here. is doing it. We've got, we've got roast beef and mum's currently doing Yorkshire puddings. Oh, so cool, the smell in the studio. We, because you, you mentioned it all the time, uh, Sue and I had to go out um, and instead of going where we first began, we just went down the pub and had a Sunday lunch instead. So. Well, quite oh. right. yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Actual torture. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Do you know what? I might, yeah. even, I might even dig the apple crumble out of the freezer oh, this sorry. afternoon. Have that with some custard. Yeah. What a treat. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, enough of talk food, otherwise we'll get more emails. Uh, it's so, time to wrap up. So nice to see you. Thanks ever so much for joining us, everybody. We will see you all, he says, pressing all the wrong buttons. Somebody keep filling one. So that I'm is quite. where we're going to bring episode number two. 146 of the show to a close. See us again next Friday night, 7 yep. o'clock. And uh, have a great weekend. Have a great Sunday. Enjoy yourselves, whatever you're doing across the globe. And uh, take care. And from me, Carlos, it's goodbye. Uh, from me, it is goodbye. And Sanev? Yeah, see you next week, guys. Have a good week. Bye bye, everyone. Bye. bye. And I've pressed the military. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll try that again. I'll get <laughs> <laughs> You can't get Just started. play the outro. Yeah, okay. <laughs>